Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mojo DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandu. Hi, this is Libra Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Don. This is Joe. Selena, you punch Stan! This is Stella. And John is taking this episode off, but uh, we do have a bunch of books to cover. We actually have a total of eight titles to cover, and we are covering all the news and comic books that were that came out during the weeks of October 9th through the 22nd. So a decent chunk of little news. We also have a little bit of a wrap-up from New York Comic Con. Not a whole lot out of New York Comic Con, but we do have some things and then we'll get into our eight books. Uh, Bad Books for Beginners is taking this episode also off uh, as Batman Nightfall is a very, very long thing. And the last couple episodes for BBFB have been much longer than usual. So uh, Nick is going to take a little bit extra time to prep the next uh, couple episodes of BBFB. So this will probably be a little bit shorter. But then uh, again, there's eight books and... Uh, a uh, pre-recording poll shows that uh, we're split down the middle on uh, a couple of these titles as far as uh, whether or not we like them or we don't like them. So uh, I'm sure some interesting discussions will occur when we get to those titles. But like I said, we do have some news. So let's, uh, let's jump right into it. The very first thing we have is on October 14th. Scott Snyder talked with Newsarama about a bunch of things having to do with Batman. Now, Scott Snyder, as we all know, tends to go all over the place and do all kinds of interviews. But because of that, there's a ton. There, there's not always a ton of new information. So we do have a couple new questions uh, referencing Batman number one and some of the things that are coming up in Batman number two, which wasn't in stores yet. And then going on from there. So for this interview, I'll read for Newsarama, and Don will read for Scott Snyder. The first issue seemed to celebrate the Batman world, with a lot of villains and familiar faces, from Vicki Vale to Leslie Tompkins. Was your idea for this first issue to brush up against different faces from Batman's world and clearly establish who he is and what his backdrop will be in these stories? Yeah, we wanted a celebration of all the characters who make up Batman's world, his allies and his contacts and his villains. Even if the issue didn't introduce people like Leslie to new readers, we wanted to put that whole cast on display. Batman is going to not just be about Batman and Gotham. The repercussions of what happens to Batman will be felt across the whole Bat family. Is there anything else coming up in Batman that you want to tell readers about? You're going to start to see a lot of bad guys soon. Stay tuned for the introduction for our new owl-themed villains in Batman, and for big twists and turns that have to do with the history of Gotham, and some surprises about the characters you really like. Things that are buried in their history that are going to be brought to bear against them in the present. And it's going to be very dark and twisted. There are a lot of fun waters ahead for all of us, I promise. It's going to be a good ride. We're really excited about it, so we hope you guys are too. This is the Batman story we tell if we only got one chance to do it. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. 
not a whole lot of news out of that, but uh, it is interesting because it does seem like Batman number one was one of the few titles that actually introduced a large uh, variety of characters from the Batman universe to readers, not necessarily introducing them as they all had parts, but he very clearly stated that some of these characters still exist, even with the the events of Flashpoint that have taken place. Alright, so the next bit we have also comes on October 14th. New York Comic Con kicked off um, that weekend, and the very first panel to happen was the DC All Access Batman panel. Now, DC has decided to rebrand their, their actual panels with this All Access name. Um, now, All Access, does it actually mean we're going to get All Access? Well, uh, no. you be the judge of that. Um, but uh, in attendance were a number of the creators from the Batman universe, including Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, Tony Daniel, Mike Martz, Bobby Chase, David Finch, Peter Tomasi, Kyle Higgins, Lee Bermejo, and Chris Burnham. I don't know that they would have had any more seats available for anybody else if anybody else showed up. But that's actually true because Amy Reader was at New York Comic Con and actually tweeted that she uh, could not attend because they didn't have space for her. But uh, let's go over some of the key things that they mentioned. Detective Comics number 3 will introduce another character into Dollmaker's stable called Jack in the Box. Detective Comics will be bringing on a new colorist who will add a more grittiness to the title. Batman the Dark Knight will feature Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, and the Legion of Doom headquarters. Nobody appearing in Batman Robin is a new villain and has ties to Henry Ducard, which will be shown in issue number 5. Even though Tim Drake is featured in Teen Titans as a main character, he will still appear in titles such as Batman and Nightwing. James Gordon Jr. is more of a Dick Grayson villain and will be making an appearance in Batman in a story that includes Batgirl. Cassandra Cain will have a significant role in Batman Incorporated. There are plans that are in motion for Stephanie Brown, and Batman Earth-1 is set for release in summer of 2012 which we already kind of knew that last one based on the Amazon solicitation saying that it's going to be coming out in May of 2012. So, what do we think about this news? I um, actually am interested to know that James Gordon Jr. is going to be just, or at least for now, mainly a Dick Grayson villain. Um, I think he's, he's cool as a Dick Grayson villain. I kind of thought that he was going to be, you know, he would affect more of the Bat family as it went on like the other villains did, but for him to be specifically targeted towards Dick, maybe he'll show up in the Nightwing title, maybe Dick will show up regularly in the Batman title. I actually found that to be really interesting. And also, I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear that, that we're definitely getting more Cassandra and that Stephanie is coming in soon on the way too. So, yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty good news to hear. I think the one I'm most excited about is Detective Comics getting a new colorist because if you remember from the last episode that's the one issue I had with that or at least the main issue because I wasn't so keen on the colorist for Detective Comics issue 2 and uh, it'll be exciting to see James Gordon Jr. again in Batman written by Scott Snyder and I'm looking forward to seeing Cassandra Cain because it'll make Don happy and when Don's happy I'm happy <laughs> as you should Shipper. be uh, yeah, I love the Kaz Cannon stuff news for sure. That that makes me really excited. I I like the idea of James uh, Gordon Jr. being um, a Nightwing villain just because he Dick was Batman at the time that James came around. But I wonder how this interacts with Barbara. And maybe Josh Bertoni's theory was correct that him stabbing Barbara in the legs was the miracle. Who knows? 
Better not have been. I th <laughs> that would be awful. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so then the next bit of news we have comes on October 16th. The next panel that was held that had Batman-related news was the DC All Access Meet the Publishers panel. This was on the last day of Comic-Con on that Sunday. A couple of things. Chip Kid's project that was hinted almost two years ago was finally announced. It's called Batman Death by Design. And it will be an original graphic novel written by Kid with art by Dave Taylor. This is set for a summer 2012 release. Uh, Batman Earth 1 is over 113 pages long and is also set for summer 2012. And Nightwing's new color scheme was a last minute change from the blue to the red and changed right before the cover was released to the public. Now out of this news, uh, the only thing that is kind of interesting is so Batman Earth 1 is coming out in summer of 2012. Chip Kid's books coming out in summer, or summer of 2012. So that's two graphic novels in summer right around the same time The Dark Knight Rises come out. I'm sure that's not by mistake. The other thing is, uh, for those of you who have been around for a while, we interviewed Chip Kid at Comic-Con 2010, and he talked about this project that he was working on, and it was originally not a graphic novel, it was actually a miniseries. And I'm starting to wonder if some of the uh, miniseries that DC had planned, they're just making graphic novels so that they still have enough stuff coming out in graphic novel format instead of just trade paperbacks. It seems to me that that's what they're doing lately. If that's the case, I wonder if we're going to finally get Batman Europa. <laughs> Maybe. Alright, the next bit of news we have comes on October 17th. DC released their solicitations for January of 2012, and there are not very many surprises. Uh, all the current series continue on with their next numbers, number 5 in the case of the new 52 series, and number four for the two miniseries, the Penguin and Huntress miniseries. Uh, Batman does not appear to be making a large number of cameos in any other titles, as he or any other characters from the Batman universe only appear in their normal series. Batman Incorporated appears not to be starting in January, as the series was not solicited with a number one, nor was Batman Beyond. Both of those series are still waiting for their first issues to be announced. Uh, Tiny Titans will feature characters unmasked with red hair, and Barbara Gordon will take center stage. Yay. Over in Young Justice, the origin of Earth-16 Clayface will be revealed. So, not a whole lot going on. Uh, the Batman Incorporated and the Batman Beyond thing is kind of interesting because, you know, I'm pretty sure it's been since July or August that they've been saying, oh yeah, early 2012, both these series are going to come out. Uh, they said that Batman Beyond was going to happen. Adam Beeching said, yeah, yeah, I'm so glad it's happening. It's happening early 2012. We know that there's other issues that were already done. So I, I, I would love to know what they're waiting on. Um, I'm wondering if they're waiting on the miniseries, the Penguin and the Huntress miniseries to wrap up, with one of them wrapping up in January and the other one wrapping up in February. That could leave those two to be replaced but i don't know if that's going to happen either I, i'm not i'm really not sure if uh what i'm about to say has any hope any merit but maybe it's just because the fact that the, there are so many bat books that they want to hold them off before they really do kind of like dilute the whole company line and i, I don't mean that by you know trash or anything but the fact that there's more batman titles than any other character sort of like logistically has trouble with, with being produced all, all at the same time which is why they have to be waited for like several months i mean 
that's 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 my thought. I'm not I'm not really sure how it is, but it could be that. I think that's probably the case. It seems quite likely. I th- I'm just a bit disappointed that we have to wait even longer for Batman Incorporated. I love me some tiny titans. All right. So then the next news we have <laughs> comes on October 18th. Chip Kid. Uh, talked with Combo Resources about his project that was announced over the weekend, Batman Death by Design. So for this interview, which is pretty long, I will read for Combo Resources and Joe will read for Chip Kid. What was your draw into Batman in terms of this project? I heard artists over the years talk about their love of design element of the character and how he's essentially composed of triangles rather than rounded shapes. Is that what you tap? into on a primary level or does it start with the character's story for you even though i would say i very much art directed the project i'm not the artist so this became an issue of working with someone of with somebody who had a like-minded vision of what i wanted to do and could really devote what turned out to be two plus years of of his time to it i had a sensibility in mind and i had a kind of milieu in mind then i started thinking about a plot and the beginning middle and end and taking it from there the artist on the book is a gentleman named dave taylor the other side of of the batman equation is his great rogues gallery how did you approach who or what to use in terms of threats to gotham it was funny i really made this up as i went along since i've never done anything with this kind of scope even though i've written two novels so i wrote up an outline and some character sketches i created some characters i created a villain and so I presented all of this to my editor, Mark Chiarello, and we went out to lunch to talk about it, and he said, I like this, and I think it can work, but I'll throw this out here. Don't you want, to, don't you want any of the classic villains? And I said, well, I don't know what I'm allowed to do or not do. <laughs> Maybe this isn't very obvious, but the whole project is very much out of continuity, and as it turns out, thank God. Because of the time we started, the New 52 wasn't really on the timeline at all. So after Mark said that I went, can I have the Joker? And they said, sure. So I threw him into the mix, which turned out to work very well. It added to the story, and I got to do my version of it, rather than our version of it. Now that you're personally at the end of the scripting process, what have you learned that even after knowing so much about the comics you didn't expect going in, did you feel in over your head at points as you went, or did it come naturally? I think with something like this, that if you don't feel in over your head, you're probably not trying hard enough. I think it is good to try and do something outside your comfort zone, not just for the sake of it, but to challenge yourself. I think the big challenge for me was the page count was finite, and I found myself wanting to squeeze in more stuff than I had room for. There were certain subplots that I wanted to work in that I simply wasn't able to, as I was breaking it down. That was kind of a drag and hard to work around. Although I think we did it well in the end. We still got to we've still got to do lettering and sound effects, yeah. But it is still drawn. The pleasant surprises for me were when Dave would frankly not do what I was telling him to do and break it down a little differently. The one thing I did that he said he really liked was that. And I don't know how else to do it. I didn't do a script that looked like a normal comic book script I know of. In other words, it doesn't look like a movie screenplay. I diagram all the pages out. It's very specific with me showing this is how big this panel is. This is what's happening in the panel. And this is a dialogue. Dave said he liked that because it did a lot of work for him. And that was the idea. To put as little guesswork in as possible. But where he 
pleasantly surprised me was where he would deviate from that. There's actually one big huge deviation at the beginning of the book that just shocked me, and it didn't make me angry, but I had to go, hmm, wow. I can go into more detail about it once the book comes out, but he did some really amazing things. His characters look great. There's a new female character who's not exactly a femme fatale, but she's kind of a romantic foil for Bruce Wayne named Cynthia Sill, and she's absolutely amazing. She's sort of a cross between Jacqueline Kennedy and Grace Kelly. She's really fantastic. It all looks great, and it's coloured minimally. It's a pencil with no ink, so it has a really distinctive look. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. Clearly, I'm, I'm not real sure I understand exactly what was going on with this interview because the first in, first question he answered saying, I didn't art direct the project and I'm not the artist. And then the last question he's saying, well, I specifically was saying I want the panels this big and I want this in the panels. So that's pretty much art directing, but I digress. Yeah. No, my, my sentiment is exactly, and I don't have much else to add to that. But that that, that, is, that is specifically art directing. That's... I mean, I've seen I've seen that in Marvel. That 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 is the definition of art directing. So I'm gonna understand what it is if he's not an art director. He says, he does say, I very much art directed the project. So he's saying he did art direct it. Okay. Okay. So I have nothing to say. <laughs> okay. Of course, it. You know, I would pick up on this, but I just have to ask: Why is there another woman being brought in when we already have? Three. So many relations. Yeah, we do have three, and I thought the main one was going to be the Charlotte Rivers relation. I just feel like it's too much. I don't know why every book has to have uh, a love interest. It's not being approved, still. Everyone knows maybe. that you know oh! five, five uh, love interests a character. Well, maybe because it's out of continuity, so Charlotte Rivers doesn't actually exist in this Batman universe. It's not just that, but yes, this is not going to be in continuity, and everybody wants their own female. That's 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 what I've d- deduced. Everybody wants their own years. female, <laughs> said Dustin Ritchell. All right, so the next thing we've got comes on October 18th. The release of Batman Arkham City has brought yet another digital tie-in series to DC's digital store. It is called Batman Arkham Unhinged. It's written by Derek Friedolfs with art by Mike S. Miller. Um, it didn't actually, I haven't actually seen this yet, but uh, clearly the uh, digital exclusive chapters that were released as part of the Batman Arkham City actual mini-series that came out, the chapters that were released in between, were successful enough for them to warrant doing another mini-series, or whatever they're calling this one, for the actual release of the game. So that is available as we speak. Next up... On October 19th, Newsarama posted an interview with Kyle Higgins talking about what's coming up in Nightwing and, more importantly, who is coming up. So for this interview, I'll read for Newsarama and Don will read for Kyle Higgins. In the latest solicitations, it's been revealed that he's going to be traveling with the circus. Is that what guides the settings in this arc? Yes, he's going to go out with the circus. The events that happen in issue two are going to push Dick in a direction where, in order to find the answers to the mystery about the circus and himself, he ends up traveling with the circus. What's cool is that, as he goes from city to city, he's trying to find these answers. There are new threats coming up in each issue, and those are not going to be just one-and-done characters. So the new villains and the new threats he encounters while he's traveling with the circus are all going to come back in the book again. 
it's all part of my plan to build a rogues gallery for Nightwing. I'm doing it by taking him out on the road initially. So when he returns to Gotham, all these villains that he's affected during their encounters now have vendettas against him and will filter back to Gotham City. And they'll be different from when we first see them. Scott Snyder told us it wasn't a coincidence that Dick Grayson was implicated at the end of both Batman and Nightwing. Was it on purpose? Very much so. I've known what Scott has been planning on Batman since before we launched Gates of Gotham. Before that project was even in the works, Scott and I were working on on ideas, story ideas because he'd read my Night Runner material and we just gelled and became really good friends really fast. He was sharing his pitches and I was running my pitches past him that I was preparing for DC. So when I was writing my first issue of Nightwing, I wanted to strengthen that tw- the twist that Scott was doing at the end of Batman. Dick Grayson plays a prominent role in Batman. Let's talk about issue number four of Nightwing. We get to see Barbara Gordon working with Dick? Yes. She comes down to Miami working a case that she started in Gotham. But we'll see them together first in Batgirl number three. Does this meeting connect to that meeting? I'll just say that Gail Simone's issue number three of Batgirl leaves things in such a way that it makes sense for me to follow up. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. And by the looks of issue number two, which we'll review later, um, there's a reason of, there's another reason why he's traveling with the circus other than he used to be part of the circus. There's an actual reason for that. From the way he answers that last question, it makes it sound as if it's not directly tied in with Gail Simone's issue. And it's just, he can kind of shoehorn it in so that it works. That's just the way I read it. But The way I got it was it seemed as if this was something where they editorial wanted Nightwing or Gail Simone wanted Nightwing in issue number three. And they were like, okay, well, let's have a crossover and make it work so it's not just Gail Simone using Nightwing. That's That's what I got out of it, but I don't know. Well, I obviously do love some Dick and Bab shipping, but I'm I'm a little concerned just because Nightwing number two. Don't want to spoil anything, but there was some shipping there uh, in a rather unfortunate manner. So who knows, really, if this will just be a business-only kind of situation in this crossover, if we can call it that. Business and not pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next thing we've got is on October twentieth. Uh, Scott Lobdell talked with Newsarama about the uh, controversy that uh, has been plaguing Red Hood and the Outlaws from day one. Here we go. If it wasn't the sexiness of Starfire, then it was the violence of Jason Roy. So issue two hit stores the day before this interview posted, and uh, Scott Lobdell wanted to set a number of things straight uh, regarding some of the topics that uh, appear in this interview. So I will read for Newsarama. And Stella will be reading for Scott Lobdell. Scott, the first issue of Red Hood and the Outlaws had a high level of action, energy, and sexiness. Was that the tone you were hoping to achieve? And will that be the style of the story and art going forward? Certainly. That was the tone for the first issue. But there is an old saying in writing, you can't end every sentence on an exclamation point. That is, if every issue had the same tone, it is bound to get boring really quickly. I know as of right now, the action shares equal time with the emotional core of the characters in issue number three, issue number four, and issue number five is more horror, but still maintains a high level of action and issue number six is as close as this series will come to a love story as we learn how jason and Corey first met 
The issue is called Before, and it is actually planned to be a quasi-ongoing series of standalone issues throughout the series where we'll be going back and revealing things that happened before the events of issue one. Let's talk about Jason Todd. He was shown with a bat symbol on his chest, yet he obviously wants to distance himself from the bat family. Now, that the nature of his character has been revealed in issue one, how would you describe his motivation and status in the series? I think Jason sees Batman, his mentor, as an exceptionally flawed hero obsessed with cleaning up the streets of a city that will, frankly, never ever be cleaned up. To that end, as far as Jason is concerned, Batman is on something of a fool's errand, trying to accomplish something that will never happen. To that end, Jason sets much smaller and manageable goals for himself. Break Roy out of prison. Check. Investigate slaughter of ancient assassin monks. Check. Destroy the untitled. Check. When Jason sees a problem, he's going to deal with it with a degree of finality that a Batman does not, because of his rather rigid moral code. In issue number six, we'll learn exactly why the Bat is on his current costume. Issue number three, Solicitation, indicates we'll hear a lot more of these characters' memories and their revamped past in the DCU. Is that the issue readers should watch for explanations? Anything you can tell us about what we'll see in issue number two and three? I think with each issue, we'll learn more and more about each character, as is the way with most monthly comic book series since the creation of serialized adventures. Not only would I tell readers they'll learn a lot more about the characters in issue number three, I'd tell them they'll learn more about the characters in every issue. But to answer your specific question, issue number three is going to show us why Corey is someone you want on your side. Always. Both in the present and the past. We also pick up some more clues as to Roy and Ollie's original relationship and a cameo from a Batman character who helped turn Roy's life around at his lowest ebb. Also, we get to see what's really important to a guy like Jason, giggity giggity, who tries to make it clear that he finds very little sacred or worthwhile. All right, so that's the end of that interview. I just want to put a little disclaimer out there. We are not actually trying to impersonate the people that Stella is doing the voices of. It's just meant to be fun. So we're not actually trying to impersonate these people. Never, not never. A, not, not all these writers sound like snot-nosed teenagers. Just <laughs> All right, so out of this interview, I didn't really include a lot of the uh, controversial things such as the uh, sexiness of Starfire. Um, if you want to know more about that, you can head over to the link on the website and then uh, head over to Newsrama to read about that. Um, specifically because Starfire is not somebody that's actually part of the Batman universe other than just because she's appearing in this title. So we didn't really include it. But uh, as far as the Batman stuff, I'm I'm looking forward to finding out why exactly Jason's walking around with that bat symbol on his chest because there has to be a reason for it. Um, and I'm wondering if the reason is just think is just that he thinks that he is good enough to be Batman, like we saw in Battle for the Cowl, and that that could be the reason. Something that has me, <laughs> something that I would be interested to learn is um, 
which Batman character would quote unquote help help turn Roy's life around because um, just originally in the in the story where he was on drugs, it was Black Canary who helped him through his withdrawal. And since Black Canary is in Birds of Prey, I'm wondering if she technically counts as a Batman character, and that's who he's referring to. Um, if it's somebody else, that's fine. But I was I was just thinking back to you know read the original story and wondering if they changed it or if they changed it but kept the same characters. All right, so then moving into our last bit of news on October 21st, uh, Lee Bermejo talked with Newsarama about his upcoming release of Batman Noel, which is a graphic novel that has very distinct connections to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama and Joe Reed for Lee Bermejo. Lee, you mentioned in New York, original idea for Batman Noel came out of your desire to theme a graphic novel like a kid's book. But looking at the pages, this clearly isn't a kid's book. No, no. My wife makes fun of me when I mention kids, because she says, if you think this Batman story is for kids, you clearly don't know kids. And it's pretty obvious we don't have children. I don't think it's a children's book. But it has visual qualities and narrative quality that mirrors that, purposefully so. I think there's also something very interesting about that juxtaposition. It's hard to imagine Batman in a children's book. I like contrast, and I like juxtaposing things like that. When I was a kid, like four or five years old, I was obsessed with the Batman TV show in the 60s, and I took it totally seriously. At that age, I took it completely seriously. I don't get the fact that it was kind of played for laughs. I didn't understand why my mum was rolling her eyes or chuckling. I think there's something kind of interesting there, to play the book seriously, but kind of wink and nod sometimes. And this is a play on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Are there actually three ghosts? No, none of these characters are playing the actual Dickens characters, but you'll see characters in the story who are analogues to the ghosts. There are characters who fit in with the roles that those ghosts play in Dickens. The Ghost of Christmas Past is a sequence of Catwoman. The Ghost of Christmas Present is a sequence of Superman. And the Ghost of Christmas Future is Joker. The roles these characters play at that moment in the story help serve the same purpose as the characters serve in A Christmas Carol. Does it take place any certain point in continuity, like between two certain issues? It doesn't necessarily fit into any particular continuity. It's hopefully something that any reader can pick up without having to know a ton about Batman. I think the neat thing about these characters now is that everyone knows who Batman is. They're familiar with the fact that he's Bruce Wayne and that the Joker is his arch-nemesis. They even know about Robin. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. This issue, or this graphic novel actually comes out in stores on November 2nd. I'm, I'm looking forward to this, um, and this might actually uh, make it onto our holiday special for this year. Because we won't be reviewing it on the comic podcast just because it is a graphic novel and it is fairly long. So... If you're interested in us including this in the holiday specials, shoot us an email and let us know. Yeah, I'm interested as well because I really do like Lee Bermeo as a comic artist. And um, I've already seen some, the images I've seen of uh, the story look, look really good. And I've always liked his interpretation of Batman, you know, visually. Um, <laughs> I w- obviously, it's going to be dark because of what we heard and what his wife has said. But um, I would like it if, it if it's at least, you know, not a, a Batman story that takes place during Christmas, but... I don't know, maybe, maybe it is more than just this, that. Maybe it's a little something a little more special that justifies the graphic novel format. Because this, this is like, you know, there are, I think people get, sometimes get confused. There's one-shots, and then there's graphic novels, and this is legitimately it. So I'm looking forward to this. this. This sounds to be pretty fun. And I just hope that he, once again, 
does as well as with this as he did with the Joker graphic novel, which I thought was really good. I'm the complete opposite. I don't like Liebermeyer's art style, and I think the playing on A Christmas Carol is such a cliche thing. And I think every show or every sort of franchise has had that, like when they've reached a certain amount of issues or episodes or something. It's like, oh, we need to do a Christmas special. I know, let's just interpret interpretate that again. So I'm not looking forward to this, and I probably won't be reading it. I would agree with Joe, especially on the uh, the art style, and I just wonder how how it uh, is mimicking a Christmas Carol. That that seems interesting. So I guess I'm intrigued with that, but not exceptionally excited for it. All right, so that is all of our news. That means let's get right into our comic reviews. Oh, yes. And the first issue we're going to do is Batgirl number two. But five men against one girl is ridiculous. Oh, I'm enjoying this. Don't bother. Don't bother to return the many favors you've done for us, Batgirl. Mash them! Batgirl number two. Cut short, cut deep. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Ardian Siaf, inker Vicente Cifuentes, and colors Ulysses Areola. As the issue begins, we see Detective McKenna, Mirror, and Batgirl all standing in a destroyed hospital room. Batgirl berates herself silently. McKenna threatens Mirror, and Mirror decides to be a nice person and let McKenna live, if only because she's not on the list. Batgirl vows she will never again hesitate as she leaps out the window after Mirror. Batgirl gets the drop on Mirror, but somehow muddles it up. Babs lands on a gargoyle as Mirror hangs off of it. She reaches for Mirror to help him up, but he throws her off, stating that she is on the oft-repeated list that we have yet to see. Batgirl does some quick calculations, launches a line, saves herself with the gargoyle again, but her arc is low enough to throw her into a cab. An angry cab woman who is reminiscent of Kathy Bates yells at her as she stumbles up through the pain. The scene then switches back to the hospital, where Detective McKenna is getting checked out. She wants to continue to look for Mirror and fights with an orderly when Commissioner Gordon walks in. Gordon comforts her in the same breath that he tells her she needs to take a bereavement leave. Before Gordon leaves, McKenna tells him that they are going to need warrants not only for the Mirror, but for Batgirl, who has returned. Cue the surprise music. Presumably, the same night, Batgirl finds her way to the Hallows, a Gotham cemetery, and drops in on the mirror, about to pay his respects. Batgirl gets some choice hits in, but gets a little too confident and takes a bad hit, thus realizing the strength of her foe. The mirror finally flashes Batgirl, but it does not seem to phase her as he would expect. After Batgirl muses that she can't die because she has a lunch date the next day, she gets to work, getting in some hits and avoiding as many of his as possible. She realizes that she is not Batman, so she cannot outfight him, but she is smart, so she's going to outthink him. She plays Artful Dodger and grabs the list from him. As the sounds of sirens come to them, the mirror grabs back the list and leaves Batgirl keeled over trying to catch her breath. Batgirl walks back to her new apartment, since she cannot go back to her bike at the hospital. She is greeted by an angry Alicia with a bat and collapses in her arms. GBG then wakes up in Alicia's bed with taped ribs, because Alicia is really crystal brown, registered nurse. Gets a lecture, assures her roommate that she is okay, and then Alicia 
Oh, and then ask Alicia if she can borrow something cute. Looks like it was a good decision, as her date even comments on the outfit. It is the first date between Babs and her physical therapist, Gregor, who seems to think it is unethical to see each other socially. Babs takes the lead on the date, since she asked him, and they both go to the park. Gregor asks Babs about getting back the use of her legs, and Babs lets slip her skepticism regarding miracles. Why should she be the one who receives a miracle? Why can she not answer the important questions surrounding this turn of events? This gets Gregor a little upset, but the date seems to turn out okay overall. We then see Babs at the public library, ooh, home sweet home, trying to figure out the identity of the mirror. She uses the clues that he has given her, I don't understand how she got them either, to discover that he is a Mr. Mills, a hero who lost his family in a tragic car accident, goes to his place, finds an armory, gets a greeting and some exposition from Mirror, who appears on a screen, figures out that Mirror just wants his life to end because he feels he doesn't deserve the second chance at life, and then hears that Mirror is out to kill anyone who should have died. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is Final Destination number 7. To rectify one life that should have been terminated, he has planted a bomb on a subway train. Bum, bum, bum. All right, Batgirl number two. This is, um, let, let's, let's, let's see, where can I take this? So, issue number one of Batgirl number, or issue number one of Batgirl, I was kind of hesitant about. I was not a huge fan about it. I actually gave it one out of five batterings. Um, this issue is a lot better. I thought this was, this did a couple things that I really wish they would have done in the first issue, but they didn't do. Um, one of those things would be they actually addressed more so of the ability of not being able to walk, and suddenly she can walk, and why is that? I understand that as time goes on, we're going to learn more about it, but I think the first issue, it was kind of, uh, it was there, but it wasn't addressed. At least with this issue, we see her at least having somewhat of a discussion with the physical therapist about, hey, um, yeah, it's a miracle. I don't know how it happened. I'd love to know how it happened, but it's, it's something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So then that at least in some ways explains why exactly we're, we, we don't know a lot about what happened because Barbara herself doesn't know a lot about what happened. Um, I think it's also interesting that um, this Mirror character, I like his backstory, is, is kind of kooky and stupid and kind of overused as it is. Stupid's the word. I still, I still kind of like it. Uh, I think it's kind of an interesting idea that at least I haven't seen for a little while. Um, I like the idea of somebody who believes that they should have died because everyone else that they loved also died, and they actually use their they're out for that. But at the same point, being someone who goes around and is specifically trying to kill people who should have died because they're under the assumption that, well, they would have been better off if they would have died, I don't know that that's necessarily the best idea. But I like the idea of a character who believes that he should have died with the people he loves so he himself should die and that's why he's doing some of these things i thought the art was great i thought the writing was much better i i i'm i would dread reading firestorm which is the other book gail simone's writing for the new 52 because 
with all the lack of sexiness that seems to be happening in uh, Batgirl, it seems as if Firestorm's probably completely over the top with the sexiness because it just seems like uh, Gail Simone's not being able to do what she normally does. But I don't know because I'm not reading Firestorm. I'm just throwing that out there because it's interesting how little amount of the sexiness that's actually happening in Batgirl. And I think that's a good thing because I would uh, I would be very disappointed if Barbara was just this, uh, I don't know a better word to put it, but some slut who can walk and because she can walk she suddenly wants to use other parts of her body. But uh, with that being said, I'm going to give Batgirl number two four out of five bad ratings. I didn't like this issue and a year after the fact I kind of decided that I really don't like Gail Simone as a writer. I've, I've, I've said all the time that I really didn't read the earlier issues of Birds of Prey, and I kind of was, every issue I was kind of looking at it from a new perspective, see, okay, well, maybe that was one thing, let's see how this issue works, let's see how this issue works, and with this issue of Batgirl, while I've kind of, like, gotten over, I'm not gotten over, but I've kind of dealing with the fact that we're having an, an out-of-character Barbara Gordon be Batgirl again, even still, I can't reconcile with the writing, and this is what Gail Simone does. Gail Simone has a couple of uh, feisty female characters talk about things which are nice. I mean, and I don't, I like the fact that they're not typically written to be extremely female, but they are written to be female. They're, they're still women in the same sense. But she juxtaposes it with like over the top villains um, and really bad dialogue. I think this is a really badly written comic book, technically speaking. There are so many awkward scenes and scene transitions. Like the, the, the cop at the beginning. It seems to me that almost everything she says, like, you killed my partner. He killed my partner. Don't let him get away. My partner's dead. He, like, she says the same thing over and over again. And I, on the one hand, I can see this as a sense of shock. On the other hand, it's, it's like repetitive. It's, it's repetition that, that needs to be written better, I think. And just the way things, just the way exhibition is given, like, the whole scene, I was on board with this book. At, well, no, I wasn't. I kind of decided I wasn't going to like this book. But I was giving it a chance. And I was sort of rolling with the book up until the middle part. Because the scene with Alicia felt really, I don't know, it, it felt like an extreme reaction. Like she, was, she was almost victimizing Barbara. Like, you know, something's, something's going on. You're in trouble. Now you better tell me before I call the cops. Like, like that seemed weird. That seemed like forced tension. Like, why is she so, like, evil with her? Those eyes just creep me out. And then the scene with this guy that we had no idea was coming in the last issue. Because apparently this takes place, like, in the same day. Or, or the next day. But now we're just learning that she has a date. All of a sudden, that, that, that felt awkward to me. And specifically the scene where she talks about miracles and you know, saying things like, why are these questions so dark to me? Why is it so painful? No one talks like that, Gail Simone. I'm sorry. No one talks like that. And it's really annoying to me because all of here is like, you know, Gail Simone's awesome. Give her the chance. She knows Barbara Gordon. And I have. I honestly got to have. My personal preference is that this is not the type of writing I like to see. I don't think this is very good. I think Mirror's origin is forced, hackneyed, and, and, and um, cliched, honestly. And Barbara Gordon's still not written as Barbara Gordon. This was a better issue than last year, and last year, last issue, but I still didn't care for it. Two out of five better ranks. I actually didn't hate this nearly as much as I thought I was going to. And in fact, for the most part, I thought it was pretty good. I do really like the art, and I think that helps a lot because it doesn't accentuate anything, so it's almost like it doesn't encourage Gail Simone to write in her normal way. There were, of course, a few, not 
petty but sort of unimportant problems I had with it. But the main issue was when the faux Montoya, uh, that her line when she says, that girl, she's back, which implies that, that well, to me at least, that since Barbara was paralysed, there hasn't been a bat girl. Did any of you think that, or is that me? Yeah, that was yeah. kind of odd. Yeah. <clears throat> Which uh, goes against a lot of the things you've heard about Cass and Bab, uh, Cass and Steph being Batgirl. Also, Gordon like Gordon bugs out, uh, mm-hmm. implying that he that he must his his mind goes to Barbara. Um, other smaller problems I had were things like Batgirl smashing up a graveyard, which is never good. The extension of the Final Destination theme. And in general, just some of the dialogue, although it could have been a lot worse. So at the end of the day, I'm actually very interested to see where this goes. I'm invested in the villain, and this was a vast improvement on the last issue. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, so a lot of this issue certainly revolves around Babs, you know, getting her legs back. And it's certainly realistic uh, to a certain extent, but it almost seems as if this is literally the first night that she's been able to walk. And, you know, I doubt this is true, but even though this may be Babs' first night as Batgirl, I feel like she had to have already been working on strengthening her legs and physical therapy. So all of the, this stuff where, like, she's really hurting, she hits him too hard, oh, that was too hard for someone just out of a wheelchair. Like, it really seems like there's a miracle, the miracle has happened, I've decided to go back to being Batgirl, and here I am. But that, that, that doesn't seem like that should be right. I don't know. So I, I would really like to know how long Baz has been able to walk in order to, you know, correctly judge this situation. Something that I'm used to in the Silver Age is that, Babs right now is underestimating herself and is even dubious of her abilities, and I don't really like that. She compares herself to Batman, but, you know, how, how is that useful at all? I don't know. Uh, the intelligence level of Babs vacillates. She seems easily duped by Mirror into pulling him up from the gargoyle, yet she is able to calculate some physics equations on the fly, literally. I, I don't kind of a disconnect there. I wonder a few things as I read this issue, uh, including whether her father still knows that she's Batgirl. You know, given the shock look that he gives or the bugged out look that Don said. Once McKenna tells him Batgirl has returned, I would say that he does. And I also wonder if Babs still knows the identity of Batman. So that'll be interesting. Roommate hijinks, gotta love those. So in my world, since this, you know, Babs is now Peter Parker, uh, Alicia is Michelle Gonzalez, and the baseball bat is the shotgun for any <laughs> of you keeping track of this. Uh, I don't really know what to think about all of this. We are obviously supposed to approve of this budding friendship, but I would much rather appreciate seeing Babs get along by herself. I think Babs really seems like a weak character right now, uh, someone who cannot get a proper footing in life. I like seeing Babs at the library, but I wish she could have been there longer, allowing us the opportunity of seeing her really find the information she was looking for. Perhaps instead of having Nate narrate his life story, she could have actually found more information on him. Uh, the Mirror story seems more intriguing than we saw of him in the last issue, but still, like Joe said, yeah, the final destination. really can't get it out of my head. Uh, I did like the random um, moment where there's a train car and on the back there's graffiti and it says Professor Stein is alive. I thought that was kind of cute, but whatever. But overall, I thought this issue was both better and worse than number one. I still feel like Babs is, is 
off in the voice, but I think it's getting closer. Um, but the character, I don't know. It's just, again, not the bads we're used to. Many moments seem like there was something really missing, as if we went from A to C in hopes that we already knew B or could catch on quickly. And this is certainly not the case or should not really be the case for what a comic should be. And I think there are just too many characters or issues being introduced that need to be shelved until we know and understand the character of Babs and Batgirl. But the main issue should be seeing Batgirl get used to her legs and understanding the basis of this miracle. So I give this 2.5 out of 5 bad terrains. All right, and over on the website, the News Digger gave the issue 5 out of 5 bad rings. So that is going to give Batgirl number 2 out of a total of 5 reviews an average of 3.5 out of 5 bad rings. Let's move into our next issue, Batman and Robin number 2. He gets that attitude from you. But he has your heart, Bruce. You know how proud he is of you, of all of this. But he's young. He needs to figure things out for himself without us pushing him. Batman and Robin number 2, written by Peter Tomasi with art by Patrick Gleason. The issue opens up with Bruce expressing his fears of Damien and fatherhood to Alfred whilst Damien is training. This is accompanied by a brief visual history of Damien's life up until this point. Later on, Batman and Robin head out into the night to disrupt a weapons shipment, but the criminals, who they leave suspended by their ankles, are slaughtered by nobody. Back at the Batcave, Alfred comments on Bruce's formal parenting, and Damien, who we are led to believe is becoming more restrained throughout this issue, kills a bat in cold blood before tossing his lifeless body to the depths of the cave. Some sort of subtle metaphor for Damien overthrowing the mantle of the bat, perhaps? We then jump to Crow Kennel, where Bruce is purchasing a black Great Dane, Ace, before a man named Morgan emerges from the shadows. Bruce and Morgan obviously have some history together, which we as readers are unaware about, but it soon becomes obvious that Morgan is nobody. Morgan is disapproving of what Bruce has turned Batman into, but with an explosion of a barrel full of sweets, or candy, he disappears. To be continued. Alright, Batman Robin number two. I thought this was an interesting issue. I thought this was, again, another improvement over the first issue. Um, I, I liked how... The one thing that I wasn't very keen on with the first issue was, yes, it, it's, it's interesting to explore Bruce Wayne a little bit, but... We, everybody knows Bruce Wayne. We don't need to know more about Bruce Wayne unless it's something that we haven't been already been told. And quite honestly, issue number one just seemed like it was something we've heard over and over again with a small amount of uh, disapproval on Bruce's part when it comes to Damien. With this issue, it kind of sees the two working together. You see that relationship starting to grow. The, the, the first issue, there was no relationship. It was basically, I'm working with you because you're Robin and I'm Batman, and it's, neither one of us want this, but we're going to do it anyway. This issue, it actually seemed like both of them were making an effort to actually try to work together. Batman was actually complimenting um, Damien, even though it was in very odd compliments. And Damien was actually showing restraint um, when beating up the thugs. Um... The, the character of Nobody is definitely interesting to me. I'm, I like how it's being tied to Henry Ducard, um, which for those of you at home who are unaware of who Henry Ducard is, that was one of the people that actually trained 
Batman before he actually was Batman, or trained Bruce before he was Batman. Those of you who aren't familiar with the comics, you probably also saw Henry Ducard played by Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson in Batman Begins, but that was not the same Henry Ducard that we have in the comics. The reference to the Great Dane, again, that was kind of interesting because a lot of people online have been saying, oh yeah, it's Ace, it's Ace. Oh, are they bringing back Ace? Here, here's here's my thought on this, okay? If the Great Dane is anything, it's a reference to Batman Beyond. Because Ace the Bat-Hound was never a Great Dane before. Yes, he was. <laughs> he was a Great Dane. I always thought he was a Doberman. I always thought he was like a German Shepherd. Well, the idea... Uh, well, let me try to get this straight. Like, obviously Batman Beyond, that was a reference to Ace of the Bat-Hound and calling him Ace at the time. But, like, I think in the comic books... He was like a Great Dane-ish. And, and Batman Beyond, he was supposed to be like a German Shepherd, Hound of Baskerville's kind of dog. But I think that's the same idea. But here's the other thing. The the most recent appearance was in Batman Incorporated. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty sure that he looked exactly like that. Okay. I think, if you ask me, it's the same It's it's the same idea. But if it's your opinion, if you don't disagree, that's all. That's right. I'm just going to give my opinion. That's, <laughs> that's what reviews are. So that's what I'm going to do. With... I think it's more of a reference to Batman Beyond. The the early depictions of the Golden Age Ace the Bad Hound, to me at least, seemed like they were a German Shepherd. Um, so I'm thinking this is more of a clue of what's to come in the future, not what's been in the past. Um, going back to the character of Morgan, I don't know who this character is. I'm assuming, like we read in the interview, or we read based off the stuff that we learned in at New York Comic Con, we know that issue number, I believe it was five or six, is going to actually lay out exactly how Morgan knows Bruce Wayne. But um, besides that, I thought this was a pretty good issue. The, the whole Damien killing the bat thing, I'm okay with it. Because uh, reality is, the, guy, the, the kid's a killer. And if he's not going to be killing thugs like he was brought up to do, if he kills a bat... It's essentially the same thing as if you were killing a rat if you lived in the city. So I don't see any harm in that. If the kid's got issues and he lets it out by killing a bat, let him kill a bat. I'm sure Alfred will have a problem with it, but that's his problem, not mine. So I'm going to give this <laughs> three and a half out of five bat ranks. Awesome. <laughs> I think I think Alfred's problem with, with it would be that bats are protected, protected species in England. So... He's for like, oh no, he's breaking the law right there. The queen won't like this. Might uh, as well kill us one while he's at it. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Now I like this issue, starting from the really cool cover. Um, I think I didn't like this issue as much as the last issue, and I think that's because I think Tomasi was really in love with like the original idea of Damien to the point where I think he's losing a bit of like the transition between the last era and this era. Now, I know you can throw the word relaunch at me, but that doesn't really play with the events of the last issue. From what I, from what I gathered, it was the transition of working from Dick Grayson to Bruce Wayne, which gives, da- which, like, gives Damien his current attitude. Even though, you know, he's always been sort of like an attitude kid. I think Tomasi's like really pushing, just pushing on the idea. It's almost as though now it's like all that stuff he went through doesn't exist anymore. And like, Bruce is like saying, well, you know, he was raised as a killer and I, I got I to gotta train him to be a good guy. I mean, he's already a good guy. You know, we've, we've been through this. I mean, I can understand tension with Bruce, but it seems as though they're forgetting about that with the, with the second issue. It's, it's supposed to be the, 
Tomasi is supposed to be covering the relationship, not just Damien's character. I mean, I'm not saying we kind of been through this already, and they've acknowledged that we have in the first issue. But um, going back to the positive, I, I relate the art. Um, I like the action, and I don't mind Damien killing them, but I, I find that to be a good uh, turn of conflict for him and Alfred and Batman. I thought the issue actually went a bit quickly, and I was I like the fact that Bruce was uh, confronted by nobody. You know, there's there's no more cat and mouse game with who is this guy. We find out who he is. Bruce knows who he is. Bruce is going to be investigating him. And uh, the scene was interesting at the end with Ace of the Bat Hound, so I will give this four out of five Batarangs. I'm not a fan of Gleason's art. Admittedly, it's quite cartoony style, but that doesn't excuse it being inconsistent, which it is. Although, as I was reading it, uh, the first time I read it, I didn't like it at all, because I thought the dialogue was very stiff and Bruce was being very cold, and then I realized that's intentional, and it's written that way to emphasize Bruce's discomfort with his parenting role, which, you know, after I realized that, I thought it was actually quite a clever way to write Bruce, and I liked it. I think it's going to be interesting to see if when nobody murdered the criminals who were hanging up, or who were hung up by Batman, if the police then question whether Batman did it or not, or if they're going to stop trusting him. If, admittedly, if they do do that, it's, quite a, it's not something we've never seen before. You know, it's, it's quite a cliche storyline. But it would be interesting to have that, like a subplot element in there. And I thought it was good to see, to see Alfred being a teacher in this issue, and I'm interested to see what role Morgan plays in Bruce's past. Um, as for Damien killing the bat, for this interpretation of Damien, which I have to get over the development of his character, because I used to love him, and I'm not happy with the regression he's been through, but for this interpretation of the character, I don't mind that he killed the bat, but I do because I like bats if that makes sense. So I'm happy that he killed the bat, but I don't mind that he did it. But uh, at the same time, I'm I'm wondering why uh, Bruce, seeing as he already knows the identity of nobody as Morgan, why he hasn't already taken care of him. But uh, three and a half out of five batterings. <clears throat> well, I did find some information. So pre-crisis, he definitely was a German Shepherd. See, even this bat hound, even a dog has, you know, some historical issues here. Uh, Post-crisis, he was closer to a beagle pug crossbreed, uh, which exists apparently in the real world as a puggle. Who knows? I guess that's what happens when you ship dogs. And now, of course, you know, we've got this, this Great Dane. So there you go. Now you know, knowing is half the battle. Anyways... Okay, I like the deeper themes going on in this issue. I think it's really all about this relationship between father and son. I like the concern that Bruce is showing and how much he seems to put on his shoulders. I'm happy to see the references made back to the demon son, even if many new readers may not understand the illusion. I continue to enjoy seeing the, the chafing between Damien and Bruce, and I love Alfred's position in trying to guide Bruce and lead him to the proper way of demonstrating his feelings for his son and, you know, what he should be saying to him. And as I'm thinking about this, I kind of reflect on Bruce and Babs being sort of the mother and father to Cassandra uh, and having two different ideas of how to raise him. And now it seems like Bruce and Alfred Chipper uh, are, are like the mother and father for, for Damien's. <laughs> We're going a little bit overboard here. Really? 
That's shipper, a good... shipper, shippers always have over, go overboard, I guess. That's <laughs> true. I can't help myself. Um, I think that, you know, perhaps this issue does what the first could not do, which is be more straightforward, I think, in the conflict. You know, that is less complicated action in bad guy scenes. The final scene with Damien, you know, it's slightly disturbing, you know, as many scenes are in these new 52s. Uh, I told someone about what he did, and the person asked, why did Damien do that? And I said, well, I frankly don't really understand. Uh, but, you know, I, I do agree with Dustin there. I thought maybe he's, con- you know, he's concealing his true nature when he's around Bruce, or at least kind of inhibiting it. So if he does need a release, then it does make sense that he takes it out on something that I guess isn't really... I don't know. It's not going to impact the world, really. Um, so there you go. Uh, I liked the park scene, especially because of the future Bad Hound. I think that's exciting. Uh, hopefully he stays alive, though. And I was really confused with this Morgan character, you know, how he's tied to Batman, how he knows Bruce is Batman, what his ultimate goal is nobody is. But despite these questions, I thought that this was a really solid issue, and I liked it better than number one, and I give it 4.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, and over on the website, the News Digger gave the issue three out of five batterings, and Melinda gave it three and a half out of five batterings. So out of six reviews, this issue will get three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Catwoman number two. Ah. Madam, last week at a superhero dance, he said, I can see myself in your pants. Next thing I know, we were at his lair. He had a high-tech record player. We listened to Modern Lovers that night. I'm dating Batman and it feels right. Catwoman, written by Judd Winnick, illustrated by Gilliam March. Our story begins with Judd Winnick saying to the reader how awesome Batman and Catwoman's sex is. After that, and the scene of Catwoman stealing a priceless Russian painting, we go back to Selena's pal Lola's apartment, where she's giving the exposition from last issue. Catwoman then informs two mobs, the Ivgene clan and the Ergorovs clan, to meet at the Wayne Foundation's Children's Trust Fund for the drop to happen. At the event, Bruce makes Selena's blonde yuppie disguise for Catwoman immediately, but converses with her in his play- billionaire playboy disguise, despite the protests of Alfred. Bruce chats Selena up, but then insists seriously that she leave the building at once. Selena tries to resist Bruce's charms and flies off. Bruce has Alfred intercept her text messages, which inform where the meet is being held in the building. The Russian mobs meet, and everything goes south quick. Catwoman nicks the painting and watches Ronald get shot up, although we do not see him die. Returning to Lola's place, Selena finds her friend dead with a bullet in her head. She's then bashed, rather brutally, by the henchman of some bonehead, Name Bone! To be continued. Alright, Catwoman number two. The the section use was, in my opinion, was brought down a little bit of a level uh, for this issue. Um, We focused a little bit more on the story and kind of going along and and pushing along as far as what Catwoman knows, what she doesn't know, more characters. Uh, We thought that uh, we were building a building a supporting cast, but I guess in in one way we were building a supporting cast in the first issue so that the supporting cast could be taken out in the second issue with the uh, the case of Lola. 
But then again, I didn't really see that character lasting very long because I'm not saying this to be cruel or mean, but she wasn't very sexy, and we know this book's all about sexy. So um, <laughs> my my thought that I had with Catwoman number one with Bruce clearly knows who Selina is, but Selina doesn't know who Batman is, that was spot on because, well, that happened, and we saw Bruce Wayne saying that he knows who she is. I do find it interesting, for some reason, how Catwoman always has to be in a disguise when she goes out in public, when she's not as Catwoman. That's kind of interesting to me. I don't know if there's a reason behind that. I don't even know if she's actually supposed to be portraying someone who's not Selina. I'm having a hard time actually trying to figure that out. Um, The character of Bone interests me for nothing more than the actual look of the character. I don't know anything about the character other than his actual name and his... Name, his uh, villain name, which is Bone, but the look of the character looks really cool to me. Um, but I don't know anything about him other than that, but they've got me hooked for the, the look of the character, at least. I do find it interesting... But one thing that I, that, I ha- that I instantaneously had to think to myself when I was reading this was, we all know that in a number of incarnations of Batman, whenever Bruce is at a party and he's he's supposed to be playing up this playboy image with all the girls and the booze and all of that, we know that that's supposed to happen. But how does he actually make his breath smell like scotch if he's not actually drinking? Because everything we've always seen is him making it seem like he's getting drunk or seeming like he's drinking, but he's not actually drinking. So he must, must have some, like, scotch-flavored mouthwash or something. I... I <laughs> smelling, I guess smelling. I I don't understand that because Selena made the comment about how he uh, Bruce reeked like scotch. Scotch cologne happen. Yeah, I guess. But you would think somebody would be smelling it from his mouth. I don't know. That was the one thing that kind of caught me and didn't make a lot of sense to me because we know that Bruce isn't drinking it up, especially when in the same book, in only a matter of like a couple pages, he's having a very distinct conversation with. Uh, Alfred, who, and clearly showing that he's not drunk. So I don't know how that exactly worked out. Um, I thought this was I thought this was pretty good. I like the art, Gilliam March. This is the book for Gilliam March. Um, the writing I think could be a little bit better, but I think Catwoman number two is definitely an improvement over the last issue, which I gave two and a half out of five batterings um, for issue number one. But, again, this is the third book in a row that I feel is better than the last, and I'm going to give this book three and a half out of five batarangs. Okay. Let's have a think. Jesus, that phrase. Um, now, I hated the scene, obviously, at the beginning, because, here's the thing, I recognize that this is a new take on the Batman and Catwoman relationship that is very, very uh, violently sexual, and I've kind of I've not made my peace with that, it's like Barbara walking, but I'm kind of dealing with it. I'm not going to whine about it every issue. But the the first page felt like Judd Winnick writing to the, to the reader, as I said in my recap. Like, it felt like that's not Selena Kyle's thoughts because, hey, why would her inner monologue be talking to somebody else? Especially if Lola's dead. She says, so he says, I'm not trying to be crude, but it plays out a lot like a bar fight. Bodies get hurled around, things get broken, some pretty filthy languages uttered. That's... That's just, that's, uh, that's just too much information for me personally as a reader. And I guess that's the, that's the new relaunch New 52 way, but whatever. I don't like it. But you know what? To be perfectly honest, I was actually coming along with this, this title. Um, I, re- I really like Gillian March's art. Although I, don't like, you know, I may not know what he's drawing, but I like how he draws it. 
Um, I kind of like how he has Selena crouched on the on the table, and like the the fourth or fifth, sixth page. Um, although Jet Winnick's writing is really failing me. Like, basically, Lola says all this exhibition. Uh, so this is from when you ran with the Russians. Yes, it's him. Yes, this is Ronald. Yes, who hurt your friend? Yes, and he took out his eye. Yes, like it's literally like that. Like, do we need that kind of like like? Ah, I don't know, but. Again, I was kind of rolling with this. You know, it was a very simple story. It was a very pointless story. But it was a story on the last. It was all right. You know, things happened at least. And this, this, this doesn't make me sound like a real, like, like, like I'm just looking for trouble. But really, I was really offended by the, by the end of the story. It wasn't because of Lola dying. I actually thought that was a pretty decent uh, surprise. I mean, I, I kind of like the character, but I wish, you know, I wish she'd lived longer. But I, you know... That was a nice surprise, at least. Or at least it was a nice surprise story-wise. I did not care for Selena's beating at the end. I actually thought that was really, really bad. Because this is set on the, on the idea that, you know, this whole book is from the male gaze of the reader, obviously. Everything Selena does is uh, the camera point of view is her body. You know, she has lots of sex or whatever. She, all she talks about is how men make her feel and how wonderful that is, you know, physically. And then we see her her face getting thrown to a wall and her ribs getting kicked in repeatedly and her face beaten to a bloody pulp. And the last panel to the second to last page, she's posed with her butt in the air, you know, and her back twisted and her face full of blood. That is horrible. And I, I was really as appalled by reading that. I mean, I'm not – I'm 22. I'm not that kind of person that kind of looks for trouble. I'm not, you know – a guy who just wants to say comic books are bad or whatever, but there's ways to tell stories. And the fact that the comic book medium is precipitated on the fact of a male power fantasy in the first place, it sends a lot of really bad messages with this depiction of women a lot. That's why I have a problem with this. That's why I have a problem with Red Hood and the Outlaws, which I'll get into later. And that's why I'm giving this one out of five better ranks. Yeah, it's still an improvement from last issue. Yeah, but it's not good. After what Don just said, I feel like a very bad, very dirty human being. But I am only 18, so may- maybe I'm a bit more... I'm allowed to get away with it. Because uh, other than the introduction of Bone, who on first impressions seems a tad ridiculous, I really enjoyed this issue. And I think the reason I was so upset about the sex scene in the last issue was because... It, made Bruce come across as very weak-willed. Whereas in this issue, it didn't. And I just found the story very enjoyable. Um, And, you know, I started getting invested in the characters and getting used to the the status quo of the characters. And seeing Lola get killed at the end... Well, not seeing it, but having Lola killed at the end made me chuckle. I don't know why. Oh, (laughs) jeez. <laughs> and uh, I mean, seeing Catwoman thrown headfirst into a wall again Wait, made me chuckle. <laughs> I'm gonna give this four out. Of, I, I don't want to be associated with you. <laughs> God, uh, I was really horrified when I saw this. But go on. I'm gonna give this four out of five batteries. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. Uh, I'm done with you professionally. Can you say that with a serious face real quick, so... Uh... Am I the only one who thought, like, when you got friends, was like, yeah, you deserve that, skank. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Okay. Wow. Can I... Can I okay, I'll talk to you about this now or later, because I could seriously go on about that. 
Yeah, well, at least I'm editing this episode, so I can just edit everything that uh, Joe set out, you know, and make it seem like he hated the issue. You're editing this issue? I'm joking. This uh, say, this wait, episode. Did I say that's, issue uh, or I meant it? That's uh, that's news to me. Shears <laughs> <laughs> is way long. Anyways, John Mask on. Oh, I know, right? So the sex scene is not over. You know, I open this book and I'm like, okay, well, at least the worst has passed and it's still going on. And I feel like it got worse, if you can even imagine. And shocking, Catwoman is the one to run out, not Batman. And she goes right off to work. So I thought that was, well, that was just interesting. Okay, so I think this issue's main plot is the Russian mob and the horse painting. So Catwoman steals the painting. She works with two families, but I think it's really careless of her to set it up at a public event where anyone could get hurt or die. I mean, Catwoman, she always kind of toes that, that ethical line that I talked about with Huntress, but I don't think she would put innocence at risk like this, so I was pretty against this. Um, and then Bruce knows that Selena's Catwoman, or at least he knows that some random blonde is Catwoman, but I do wonder how he knows. And I was really disturbed to hear that Selena said she was 23, so I'm hoping that was just her cover story and she's not 23. I'm hoping. I'll pray to God. Okay, as quickly as we see Lola and perhaps get used to her in a role as friend slash confidant of Selena, she's dead. Then we have this new character who apparently is connected to everything, this Bones guy. And, uh, you know, it's the first time that he's been mentioned. I totally agree with Donovan about this whole beating scene at the end, especially because Catwoman would not take that beating. She would definitely be dishing stuff out uh, to equal or um, even more powerful, I guess. I, I don't even know how to better phrase that. But yeah, I mean, she would, she'd be fighting back. She's just like a limp rag doll in this situation. It just is like wrong. It's very wrong. Now, as a new reader to Catwoman, I can honestly say that this is really not the way I would want to get into a series. You know, Winnick, but, you know, Winnick did tell the truth, so I guess that's good. He, it, It's sexy, and it's violent. I think the only positive of this issue is that I can grasp uh, the, the, the plot. It seems to be furthered to a certain extent. I remember last time I wondered what the plot even was, so this is good. Uh, and, you know, just as it gets woven together, it seems to quickly fray apart. Frankly, I'm just not sure what to say about this issue, so uh, I, I guess I'll just give me my ratings. It, it was a little bit better than the last one, so 0.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, and over on the website, the news digger gave the issue 3 out of 5 batterings, so that is going to give the issue an average out of 5 reviews, 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batman number 2, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Pulo. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. We start off with kind of a history lesson of the original Wayne Tower, which, as we know, is currently under construction based off the events that happened in Batman Gates of Gotham. And uh, we're getting a history lesson about the Guardians, which are actually gargoyles. Um, but Guardians was the name that Alan Wayne insisted that they be called. There are five Guardians at the first tier that were placed there to watch over the five original gateways into Gotham, the three bridges, and the two tunnels. Higher up on the tower is a ring of seven Guardians, one to protect each of the seven train lines that converge 
at Union Station below Wayne Tower's base. At the top, there is an observation deck, which is always open, free to the public on the weekends. And what's this? Wait, Bruce Wayne is actually being thrown out of the observation deck. Uh, and he falls to the streets of Gotham City. 24 hours earlier, we cut to a helicopter with a bunch of thugs who are trying to get away, but it appears that they have been shot by something because the, their, their helicopter is out of control. At this point, Batman is driving along the elevated uh, train, which in Chicago, where I am from, it says <laughs> it's called the L, so I'm just going to refer to it as the L. Batman is driving along the L, and the helicopter is low enough where he's able to actually pull somebody out of the helicopter. Uh, Batman plays chicken with the helicopter and is told over intercom that uh, Commissioner Gordon is at the morgue and about to be there for the autopsy, in which uh, Batman says he'll be there. Uh, we then find out that uh, other than the stab wounds, there the the actual man who died at the end of the last issue choked on his own blood. And uh, once the coroner actually leaves the uh, the morgue, Batman uh, uplinks his scanner, which he has installed into the morgue, to get an actual 3D image of the actual person in the morgue. So that way Commissioner Gordon and Batman can be inspecting the body at the exact same time. During the uh, inspection by the two of them, they find out that one of the molars actually has a owl symbol on it that uh, has to do with the Court of Owls. Uh, after that, uh, Nightwing shows up, f makes a snide remark about how much easier things would have been if they had that scanner in the morgue a long time ago. Um, he also makes some remarks about Batman wants to know exactly where Dick was, um, and how that guy got his DNA underneath his fingertips. Dick tells him it was at a fundraising event that he was at. Uh, we then cut to before he fall, flies through the, the the observation deck, but after he talks to Nightwing, where Bruce Wayne is meeting up with Lincoln March to write him a check for his campaign for mayor of Gotham City. After they talk back and forth, we learn the back history of Lincoln March as his parents were also killed when he was a young boy, not murdered, but killed by a drunk driver. Um, as they're talking, all of a sudden, a person dressed in some sort of owl garb appears with uh, wielding a number of knives, starts throwing them at Lincoln March and Bruce Wayne. Next thing you know, he actually uh, gets into a f Bruce Wayne actually gets into a fight with this owl character, and they both go through the window. As they're falling, Bruce uh, has absolutely no way of saving himself until you find out that uh, there was actually a 13th guardian that was added to Wayne Tower, and it was added to guard the actual uh, airplanes that were making their way into Gotham City. So Bruce Wayne survives, and the Owl character falls on top of a sports car at the base of Wayne Tower. Uh, the police show up wrap this guy up, stick him in an ambulance, and as uh, the ambulance is pulling away, this owl man's eyes light up, and uh, there's a monologue of Bruce Wayne saying, there is no such thing as the Court of Owls, because if there was, I would know about it, and I know there isn't anything like this. As, the, uh, as you see, the owl character slice all the paramedics up and drive away in the ambulance covered in the inside with blood. Alright, so Batman number two. 
great issue. Um, continues to build up some of the characters. Um, I'm pretty sure at this point we can assume that Lincoln March is not the Owl character. Um, but that's not to say he doesn't have any kind of ties to the actual Court of Owls. Um, the Court of Owls is obviously going to prove to be a... Well, we already know that Scott Snyder has said this is a long-form story in the in the size range of 11 issues. So this isn't something that we're going to find out about immediately and know all the deep, dark secrets about the storyline. But I think there was a significant uh, progression that Snyder is doing very well with, which is, you know, we're finding out more about the characters that he's introducing. Um, in this case, it was Lincoln March with his background. Um, we see a little bit more tech with the uh, morgue scanner, um, and we also learn a little bit more history with the history of the Guardians that are on Wayne Tower. Uh, the art was great. I thought it was a little bit better than the last issue. I think uh, Capullo seemed to have a little bit more time on his hands with this issue and wasn't as, as rushed as the, the first issue. The first issue wasn't bad. It just seemed like this one he had a little bit more time to work with. Um, I thought this was great. I'm definitely looking forward to the next issue. Four and a half out of five batterings. Man, this was just a fun issue of Batman. It was just like... What was cool about this one is that, that it was one of those issues that, that didn't make a big deal uh, of having Bruce Wayne not be Batman, but have the main course of the action take place. And I really like the scene with him and um, Lincoln March. That was the name. I, re I really like that scene with him because you get a lot more... And obviously... He was suspect number one initially with the, with the whole owl business when we first saw him. But we get more and more of his life history and his perspective. And when he says, you know, I, my, I lost my parents when I was young too. And, you know, this is why I trust you, Bruce. I thought that was a really interesting character. Bit. And then he gets killed. Or does he? In the next scene when um, the owl guy shows up. I mean, this this is a really good um, just suspense issue. And I like the fight scene. I always like... When Batman analyzes a fight scene as it's going on, that's always kind of fun to me. I thought the art was really good, really expressive. I'm actually not crazy on the colors, but although that may be because it seemed to take place either early morning or like uh, at, sun at sunset, around like 5 or 6 p.m. in the evening, but not really at nighttime. So everything was like kind of like bright and like kind of hazy. But I still like the pencil work. I, I still like all the art. Um, even though I think it's interesting that Dick Grayson kind of looks like or at least reminds me of Terry McGinnis from Batman Beyond. Um, so yeah, I liked I liked the detective work. I liked how Batman was working with in the Batcave while still talking to Gordon. That was actually kind of cool. I don't think I've ever seen it before. At least I'm, I certainly not like that with the technology. And um, I'm sucked into this story. Um, I didn't like it as much as the last issue, but I still really enjoyed it. Four and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, in this issue we get more of Snyder's writing style, which I've now decided that I am bored of. It's not that he doesn't tell an interesting story, because like, it is a great story so far, and it's not necessarily that I find it predictable, although this issue was. It's more that I find it very formulaic, and that's what gets boring. But the, the art has grown on me. But I'm not so sure about the panel layouts, as on several occasions I, I thought they blended in with each other, and I was getting scenes confused, and I thought they were either... Like, I thought sometimes I just thought scenes seemed to be skipped or they were repeated. So, I had a bit of an issue with that. I'm still a bit suspicious of Lincoln March. And if I was Nightwing, I would have been a bit upset that my own dad checked to see if I was a murderer on CCTV. 
But I guess Dick does just realise that that's his character. But what would have been funny is if in that scene where... Like, I think it would have been really funny is if in that scene where Dick sees the hologram from the scanner in the morgue, if he'd said something like, oh, we could have used that when you died. But I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. <laughs> if only that happened. Real, real quick, um, in the Scott Snyder interview, I don't know if you caught it, but he actually said that that was one of the things that he wanted to say, but that he took out. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah that was, I thought that was what, that's what Joe was referencing. No, I, I haven't listened to that. Well, in the interview, he said that because there was like there was one thing that he wanted to do in the first issue that he didn't end up doing, and the the other thing he wanted to do in the second issue was when there when the morgue scanner thing is, he wanted to say, "Oh yeah, it'd be really nice if you would have had this thing when you were dead." Okay, I'm gonna stop you there. I did listen to it, and if you want to cut that out, that's that's fine. It was me playing a stupid joke. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Dust. No longer Dusto. It's just Dusted on his own. Shipper break up. I'm gonna be assassinated. Gonna <laughs> be assassinated by the Court of Owls. Um, but yeah, I ship Scott Snyder and Babs, and I guess they would come together and make scabs. But that sounds gross, so maybe I'll. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I thought this was a really strong story that definitely kept me hooked the entire time. You know. I first started off, I was talking to Donovan when I was reading this, and I thought, oh, man, this is confusing. Did I miss something? Did I miss something from number one? But Snyder quickly orients you and certainly gets you back to the story. The first caper that Batman is trying to prevent is at times difficult to follow, but I think that is the only downfall that this issue had. Now, as a classicist myself, I do love the ties to the classical world, whether it was with the statues that you never see in the beginning or the Athenian owls and their connection to the court of owls. I love that Snyder keeps a connection to the Gates of Gotham mini, and what's more, I love that Snyder is using Gotham as a character. You know, for the past two issues, Batman has really been focusing on the city, how it impacts people, how it can change its history, etc. And now, it's more than a backdrop or a setting. It really seems to be a living, breathing character, and I love that. Um, I also love that Bruce is able to save himself by using the city's history to his, to his advantage. I'm intrigued by this new bad guy, though he does remind me of nobody, and I'm not so sure that's a good thing. I was also really paying attention when Dick was giving his explanation of how he knew the victim. I, and I think Batman could probably say the same thing if he were real, uh, you know, kind of found it a little strange, um, and, and I really couldn't put my finger on it, but there's something weird going on there. I don't know. I love the new tech that uh, Bat is using in the, uh, in the morgue. I think that's great. And art. Uh, it was all about the details. I love the art in this issue. You know, that one panel with the close-up on Lincoln's eye and a faint reflection of the pin that he's talking about? Or even seeing Bruce grab the 13th Guardian through the, the bad guy's goggles. I just thought, oh, this is such a great issue. 4.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, and over on the website, the news digger gave the issue 4 out of 5 batterings. So is going to give the issue out of... Five reviews, an average of four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Birds of Prey number two. Good evening, all you gentlemen, mobsters, creeps, and crooks. Men in tights come after you, and still you're off the hook. For those who scare and terrorize, it's the dawn of a brand new day. You scum can't simply call 
Birds of Prey number two, Trouble in Mind. Writer Dwayne Swarzynski, artist Jesus Saez, colors Alan Pasolqua. The comic opens in Japan with Katana slicing, dicing, and talking to her, her invisible friend. More on that later. Katana tells her friend that she will indeed go to Gotham City. Back at Gotham International Airport, where we last left our two birds, Dinah brings us up to speed as to what just happened as she dusts herself off and vows vengeance for the death of Charlie Keene. Ev suggests that they leave while Dinah asks for a distraction. She gets a quick ten seconds. While she looks for some evidence, Ev goes to work, faints, and snatches the security guard's keys. While Dinah narrates how Ev is a great strategist and 10 seconds means 10 seconds, picks up a piece of Charlie Keene and his cell phone and hops into an airport security car, or should I say cart, driven by Ev. As they speed away, chased by another cart, we see the translucent figure from the first issue commenting on the scene to someone unknown. Ev drives the cart straight out of a terminal window. Deja vu, anyone? And we find ourselves at the Gotham Cemetery three days later. Ev speaks to Keene's widow, who has heard on the news that Charlie committed suicide due to the failing news industry. She does not believe the reports nor the allegations of drinking and mental breakdowns. Ev and Black Canary discuss what could have triggered the explosion as they make their way to a temporary base of operations. There they are met by Katana, who seems to be talking to the soul of her dead husband, housed in her sword. Ev is bewildered, not knowing the whole truth, and Dinah does not want to be the one to tell her what is going on. In the meantime, Dinah has to meet one of Ev's sources, this one being a neurochemical researcher, killing two birds with one stone. It looks like Ev has tried to set Dinah up. The Ricky Martin lookalike tells Dinah about a drug that showed up in Keene. The drug helps people who have had strokes, teaching the brain to reconnect pathways. It seems that certain words fire up specific responses in the brain. Ricky Martin then asks if the drug, currently in testing, is in high demand, as four of the five lads that have been producing it have been broken into. The fifth is nearby. Coincidence? I think not. Looks like a job for a ragtag bunch of hero felons. Black Canary, Starlin, and Katana go to the lab and look around, barely getting too far inside when Dinah sees one of the Reaper knockoffs and a bunch more suddenly appear. Katana makes some shish kebabs. The bad guys are told to take Dinah and kill the rest. Dinah shocks Katana with her use of her canary cry. And then Starling captures Donovan Morgan Grant. You oh. have a little something. <laughs> you have a little something on your face there, Don. What is that? Oh, oh, it's blood. Poison Ivy suddenly randomly appears. Starling is ready to kick some plant A astrogastric, and Dinah shocks everyone by revealing that she invited Ivy to be on the team. Bum bum bum. All right, Birds of Prey number two. This was an interesting issue. Again, this was better than the last issue. It set some more things up, added some more characters to the mix. Um, I, for one, think that uh, Katana is going to be interesting. I, I am unaware of her talking to her dead husband, sword, or talking to her dead husband as if he is her sword. But uh, that should present something interesting and a, definitely a new dynamic to the team. Um, the addition of Poison Ivy is also kind of interesting, but then again, the character could be very different than what we know about the character, and that, uh, to me is interesting. I have to say, the, the art for Poison Ivy was probably something I was most excited about, because, um, the idea of someone using Poison Ivy and 
you know, everyone knows Poison Ivy uses plants for her clothes most of the time. And nobody, as far as I can remember, I've, I haven't seen anybody ever use, you know, everybody knows that seasons change plants. Plants are different for the seasons. I've never actually seen anybody use that, use the, you know, mm-hmm. autumn or fall color leaves to really give a whole different look to Poison Ivy. And I thought that was really kind of cool. I think the I think the big thing is we're going to have to figure out a little bit more about these villains to really make it more worthwhile. Um, we don't know a whole lot about what's going on with these villains or why they're doing what they're doing. I, I'd like to know more, but I don't know anything about it, so I need to know more about that to really become more invested in this. But for now, I'm invested with the additions to the team, and I think this is... Uh, this is this is good. Another improvement off the last issue. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. I really liked this issue. I genuinely did, and I mean, I was I was I was hooked. I liked. I really this this made me a firm uh, fan of Black Canary. At least Black Canary in this title, and I was I was interested to know what's going on. I had uh, a couple of things. First of all, just just to get get the pain out of the way. Um, I like that they carried over um, Katana's backstory of her her being a widower or being a widow i should say her husband's killed and i like the fact that that's still in play you know it's it's the same origin but it's interpreted differently i'm not so sure how i feel about this whole business with her saying her her husband is in her sword i think that's kind of like i don't know i don't know how i feel about that it's just kind of making her crazy for what reason exactly i mean she's sort of like a legacy not a legacy character but she's been around for a while she has a history and all of a sudden oh now she's crazy i don't know how i feel about that um and also with Starling, I'm getting really tired of this character <laughs> because <laughs> every scene she's in, it's like she has to like bake herself up. I'm so awesome. <laughs> Ten seconds is is more all I need to you know get this, make this escape. Why? Because I, I like to break things. And like she looks so smug and satisfied with herself that I'm really annoyed with this character already. But that doesn't offset what I like about this issue. I really like the art. I thought the art was nice, um, dynamic, and expressive. I think Katana's car, uh, costume is really cool. Especially with the way they have in the shadow sometimes with that like Oni mask and like the shoulder blade and everything. And she's mostly in black. I thought that was, that's pretty cool from her traditional samurai costume. And I like the action scene. I like the action scene that that Black Canary saw the guy and it was basically like, it was very dynamic with the killing and everything. And actually, all, all the kind of uh, crud I gave Starling, I, I like the line, I made a new friend, let's bring him back to our place. And the scene with Poison Ivy at the end, I agree with Justin. It's interesting that she has different. Uh, uh, she, her costume's reflecting the season. It's sort of like a fall thing. The only thing I, I find weird about that is that those sleeves might die soon. But that's still like a, you know an, an observation. That's not a nitpick. So, and she's also human, or at least she uh, her her skin's back to normal as opposed to the last like ten years where she was like a green nymph using powers crazily. But this was a really cool in- issue, and I'm firmly picking this up from now on. Or at least I'm always am, but I'm firmly invested in what's going on. Four out of five batterings. This is absolutely everything I wanted this book to be, and it's probably my favourite issue out of the bunch we've reviewed tonight. And that's partly, I think, because it just surpassed all my expectations, but I really did think it was great. I thought all the, I love how all the characters have their individual quirks and are written as individuals. They all have their own separate voice, and I think the art is great. Especially, for some reason, the standout panel for me was the panel where Starling realizes that Katana is behind her, and 
her expression there is so simple, but it's like the exact reaction you would give, and it's just spot on. I mean, I can't say enough good things about this book. I really loved it. I hadn't picked up on what Dustin said about Poison Ivy having the the golden colours because of like an autumn, so an autumn theme, and where Don was saying, you know, that's a bit wrong because the leaves would die. I'm saying it's a bit wrong because ivy isn't evergreen. But it's still it's quite a cool image. I'm going to give this five out of five batterings. All the leaves are all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray and the, okay. Any what? <laughs> oh, sorry. So you know, just like Snyder's Batman number two. I think Bird starts off with a scene which doesn't quite make sense until you read further. You know, at first I thought Katana was talking to the people she was killing, and frankly I didn't understand why she was slicing and dicing in the first place, but all is revealed in the end, and I love that scene when they actually do reveal it. I like that the two current members of the Birds have differing ways of going about things. You know, Ev wants to split right away, and Dinah knows that it would be smart to at least collect some evidence. And I have to say that this is actually some really smart thinking on Dinah's part, and perhaps too smart for the character that I know and love uh, in the past, so I think she's channeling some bad, certainly. Dinah seems a little too emotionally invested in a person whom she barely knew. I mean, you know, she can feel sad and want to find out what happened, but does she really need to make a pledge to bring the killer to justice? I just don't like about that, uh, or don't know about that. Uh, I really like the scene, like I said before, with Dinah, Evan, Katana. I thought it was well-written, and we learn a lot from it in regards to the characters involved. And then Dinah's comments regarding Batman and his uh, his cave that, you know, I bet Batman has some sort of headquarters, also kind of illuminates the fact that she probably must not be very close to Batman and probably does not even know his true identity. And then, of course, we have some romantic hijinks. I'm always the one to bring these up. Dinah and Dr. Cahill. I am somewhat confused by the scene, mainly because Dinah makes it seem as if she and Ev have known each other a long time, as she says Ev has tried to set her up before. And while they may have known of, of, of each other uh, for a little while, I feel like the last issue made it seem like the friendship between the two was rather new, not long enough for Ev to be staging blind dates. P.S. I never want to hear Dinah say, he asks you out, you tell him you're dating Ev ever again. And if... <laughs> yeah, if, I if, knew when I, read, when I read that, I was like, I know she's going to say something. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I know. That's an awful shipper. Um, I think the greatest problem I have with the issue is uh, the following. Two-thirds of the members are attacking with lethal force. And Black Canary, the only one not aiming to kill, is fine with it. You know, she's even happy to have Katana's lethal skill on the team. And, you know, Canary is definitely not like Huntress. She always walks on the right side of the moral line and, like, really far on that side. So, you know, to have teammates that kill rather than just incapacitate and being okay with that seems like an incorrect characterization, but that's the strongest um, thing that I had against it, like my strongest con. 
Um, the entrance of Ivy. I knew this was coming at some point. I, I think Starling and Katana's reactions are spot on. Ivy is definitely an interesting choice on Dinah's part, and I, you know, I, I again wonder what Dinah's like ethical beliefs are um, and how Ivy's going to interact with this team. But just like everyone said, oh man, it was such an interesting design for her. Uh, you know, like she is mimicking the, uh, the the fall season and everything. And I thought that was great. I was somewhat baffled with Ivy's line. Did you bring me takeout? Maybe she's a man eater in more than one sense of the word. Anyway, uh, overall a shui issue, uh, better than the first, and I'm getting really excited to see where uh, Swaz, that's why I've decided to call the author Swaz, takes it. So I give this four out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Birds of Prey out of four reviews an average of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batwoman number two. You're the great detective. Figure it out. Batwoman number two, co-written by W. Hayden Blackman and J.H. Williams III, with art by the latter, starts off with a mashup of three different art styles as Batwoman and Plebe fight their way through an armed gang of thieves at a casino. The conversation throughout indicates that Batman offered Batwoman a place in Batman Incorporated, to which she simply replied, I'll think about it. We then cut to another art style and Detective Sawyer jogging through a, par- through a park where she runs into Agent Chase. Chase makes it clear that she believes Sawyer is Batwoman, but hands her a card with instruction to contact her if she has any information. We then cut to a church where a young boy is clearing up after a funeral service, before the weeping woman emerges from the font to drown him. We then cut once again to Agent Sawyer, this time on her date with Kate. But as soon as the date ends, Sawyer is called away to investigate a murder. A battle occurred between two rival gangs, leaving a mound of bodies, and after checking out the scene, Batwoman meets Batman to find out more about Chase. From there, she breaks into the police station, looking for clues, where she's interrupted by Sawyer. In return, she gives Sawyer a clue, and ensures that she calls Chase. We then cut to Batwoman investigating a pier, before she's dragged underwater to be con- to be continued all right batwoman number two i thought this was a great issue i enjoyed the art as as always um i don't know that i'm going to be able to continue to go on about the art after every single issue that jh williams is on because the, it, he keeps up to par with the same quality as the issues before i do have to say that the I guess the collage of characters that are part of Batman Incorporated, that was probably what sparked my interest more so than anything else in the book, specifically because there were certain characters that seemed to be phased out, and I don't, I'm wondering if that directly relates to Flashpoint, that's my assumption, um, those characters were, uh, the Dick Grayson Batman, who's no longer Batman, we have Azrael, and we have Lady Blackhawk, who's no longer around in the same format that she was in before so it's it's almost interesting to look at that and say okay was these characters taken out of batman incorporated because of what's happened at flashpoint is that why they seem to be phased out that's that's kind of what interested me more than anything else the the story the one thing that i wish would change for the story is the 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 betty kane the flame bird aspect of the story because i don't understand really why I understand why she keeps calling her the pleb I get that but at the same point it seems to me that 
if she's really trying to train her, why does she, why is she taking this military approach or this approach where she's actually like she's has to go through this weird initiation where if she's training her trainer, I don't remember Batman ever doing this thing where he he uses a name to call them that's not their name. I mean, I'm sure Batman wasn't walking around saying, "Hey, trainee, you need to do this. If you don't do this, you could die." Yeah, he might do that in a college humor video, but I don't think he's doing that in the comics. So that that was the one thing that's I'm I, I'm I, I'm getting a little tired of. Um, but I thought it was I thought this was good. It set things up. I liked the the addition of Cameron Chase, even though she had a brief appearance in the last issue. She had a much larger role in this issue. Uh, there's for those of you who don't know Cameron Chase, Cameron Chase has had pretty extensive history when it comes to the Bat family um, in past issues. Uh, but you don't need to read those in order to know what's going on. It's just, it'd be something to check out if you're interested in the character and, and the hints that uh, that Batman and Batwoman and uh, Detective Sawyer have uh, mentioned. So with that, I'm going to give this four out of five Bat rings. Um, I thought this was all right. I thought this was... Uh... Okay, enough. I I was uh, I too was interested in like the whole um, Batman Reborn era, which is you know to say like like the biggest Batman, Damian's Robin, Stephanie's Batgirl, like that kind of era, you know, with Batman Inc. and everything. I was interested in that double double page splash because we got to see those characters. Some of them phase out, like Dick is Batman and Azrael, um, Michael Lane, and um, also Lady Blackhawk, which is interesting. I'm I'm not sure why she would be phase out exactly maybe her character's gone but then they're acknowledging that her character's gone within the context of the page and then the mindset of like the characters that's kind of interesting oh one thing i wanted to say and this is this is actually i, I actually forgot about this but uh this is something that i like to bring up and this is not this isn't like me trying to like you know go on a, on a, a moral um post or anything I, I this is actually a legitimate question that I, I would like everybody to give their opinions on on the title page where we see like you know hydrology infiltration part two we see like the typical uh, description of, of the character, you know, they do with every comic. Like, Kate Kane survived a brutal kidnapping by terrorists that, that left her mother dead and her twin sister lost. Following her father's footsteps, she vowed to serve her country and attended West Point until she was expelled under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Now she's many things, a strange daughter, briefing sister, proud lesbian, brave soldier, determined hero, she is Batwoman. I was reading that when I first read this issue, and the proud lesbian thing kind of made me stop. And I'm just wondering, what do you guys think about, do you think that's a little bit, do you think that's DC trying too hard? Do you think that's like, that's exactly who she is? Do you think that should be said in the thing? Because, I don't know, it, it feels like, it feels a little too on the nose. Like, that's like saying, I know, I know it's part of her history being Batwoman, but that's sort of like saying, I don't know, nobody would say proud straight person or whatever. I, I felt that was a little too, kind of trying too hard. What do you guys think about that? Do you agree, disagree? I think, regardless of what it says in there, within the issue, it's not played up that much. So, even though she is, and you can see she is from the date she goes on with Detective Sawyer, it's not in your face, there's no sort of obvious lesbianism in it. So, either that's to sort of indicate that she is a lesbian, or I don't think... That probably wasn't written by Williams and Blackman. That was probably written by, like, the editor for the book and put in. I think, yeah, most of the solicitations are written by the editors, and those little blurbs are also written by the editors, too. My my theory on that is uh, 
that uh, they're trying to market it as this is a lesbian character, so that's how they're going to portray her. I don't think that the story, like, blatantly makes her out to be this giant lesbian, but I think uh, they're definitely trying to get that across to people. No, I definitely agree with Joe and the fact that while it may be very, like, out, um, like, very big when they put it in those sorts of words, I don't think it was played up, and I certainly, I'll go through that when I review. Um, And I do have to say, it reminded me of the Arthur fanfic. Wasn't uh, that one girl, uh, loud and proud lesbian, Don? Francine. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Okay, um, I, I actually, my, my opinion is that, you know, it's a little bit on the nose. I mean, we know she's gay, but I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, that's like kind of making a big, bigger deal out of it than the character and the actual story does. But anyway, I like the art, uh, whether it's like the actual super detailed painted or not, the illustrated art. I find the, uh, the crying woman very creepy, and I like the shipping with um, Kate and Sawyer. I actually, I kind of I thought that scene was kind of cute, how different the personalities were, and how they're both kind of... How they were both reacting to the date, I thought it was interesting. To be honest, I'm actually not that invested in the main storyline. I'm kind of invested in the Batman Inc. storyline because it's carrying off from previous uh, eras, and I'm, I'm interested in, you know, Kate training Betty. But besides that, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the ride. I will give this three and a half out of five betterings. Okay, once again, the art is fantastic, and I love the use of different styles and the awesome layouts. We had some great Easter eggs in this issue in the bar scene where I noticed Desolation Jones, which is a great comic. If you haven't uh, read it, you should definitely track that down. As well as J.H. Williams III himself, which made me laugh. And there may have been more, but those were the only two I recognized. It's crazy how good this book is. And I think the one complaint I have with it is just this one line where Batman says, like, Murdered psychics tend to come back from the dead as supervillains. Waka waka waka. Irritated me. But that was the only fault that I could find with the issue for me. But even with that, I'm going to give this five out of five batterings. Okay, the the art is astounding, and I I don't think it'll ever get old, you know, saying that. I really like the beginning where William zooms in to particular spots on the body and shows the injuries that our heroes are causing. I like hero, hearing Batwoman talk about her her answer to Batman's offer, though I don't know, you know, I don't know what would be better, you know, seeing it or, or hearing it from her perspective, but I, I, I really dig this way. Of course, um, hearing Kate talk about it, to a trusted friend, I think it really gives us her, her actual reactions. In that scene, it is great to see the cast of characters in the background as ones that make up Batman Inc. I thought that was a really inspired um, panel. I'm interested to see what this DEO agent Cameron Chase will add to the mix. I wonder if Maggie will at some point find out about Kate and then start to protect her from Cameron, or if Maggie will be Batwoman's handler of sorts and still protect her. Um, I'm not sure how those gang fights fit in, violent and disturbing to be sure, Uh, besides developing the relationship between Maggie and Cameron. I liked the second meeting between Batwoman and Batman, and again, loved the art layout of that, where it's 
actually got the, the bat symbol. Then we have Kate and Maggie's date. I thought it was well done and focuses on the characters rather than the sexy, if, if you know if that makes any sense. It was also a change to see it develop naturally and not force anything. It'll be interesting to see what Maggie really knows about Batwoman in regards to her saying to Chase, I know where you can find Batwoman. The only negative I can see is that the plot regarding the main uh, antagonist, whatever he, she, it is, uh, I feel like it's not really furthered, in my opinion. Uh, you know, what is this thing? What's the point? These questions still have yet to be answered, but I thought it was a really good issue. 4.5 out of 5 Batarangs. Alright, so that is going to give Batwoman number 2 out of 4 reviews, an average of 4 out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next issue. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number two. Tell me, what bothers you more? That your greatest failure has returned from the grave? Or that I've become a better Batman than you? Ruling through intimidation and murder, you're just another criminal. I'm what this city needs. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number two. Written by, written by Scott Lubdell. Illustrated by Kenneth Rockefeller, coloring by, by Blonde. We begin with Jason Todd threatening several soldiers in what is known as the Hundred Acres of All. The soldiers who are posing their weapons to kill him are known to, as the Caste, and their leader is Dukra, the instructor. Jason is being smarmy and gets punished for it before he, she agrees to train him in the martial arts. We cut to a year and a half later, where Jason and Roy are aboard a plane trip to Hong Kong. Roy is being annoying, and Jason is responding accordingly with curt humor until the flight attendant hits on him and gives him her number. The two meet Starfire, who has booked them on a limo. At Hong Kong, Jason meets with Susie Zhu, an obese woman who looks like a man. Jason kills her. Next we see, <laughs> Next we see the outlaws aboard a helicopter over the Himalayas. Jason and Roy jump out when the weather gets too tricky. Corey comments on Jason's buttocks. Red Hood and the others arrive at the scene where Dukra and the case are all dead. Dukra's ghost rises from her body to tell Jason how they were killed, conveniently. Suddenly, the bodies rise and attack the outlaws as zombies. The outlaws defeat the zombies and Jason feels vengeful. Starfire shows sympathy. The end. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number two. I thought this, again, was a better issue than the last issue. I, I, I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record here, but I think that uh, we learned a little bit more about Jason Todd. This issue was more about learning about Jason Todd as it kind of uh, rediscovered the events that happened after Jason Todd was brought back to life. Yes, we've seen this like 15 times in the last 10 years, but uh, with the new flashpoints, I have some clarification exactly what happened. Although I have to say, judging by the way Jason Todd looks in the panel, I'm I'm wondering if the uh, Jason Todd Talia Ghoul. Uh, no. Bedroom scene was uh, retconned, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I don't really care. I really don't want it to happen, but uh, I don't really care about it to, to, to pursue trying to find that out. The, the interesting thing about this is, again, just like Catwoman, the sexiness for this issue kind of went down. Yes, uh, there's a moment in the limo where there, there's kind of like a awkward silence because Roy slept with Starfire. <laughs> And it's not even really addressed. It's kind of just, okay, we're going to put this to the side. At the same time, yes, there is a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of degrading of women in general because they, again, Jason is 
uh, gets a phone number from a chick, and Roy just basically says, "Oh yeah, hey, look, you, you you've got the moves, man. Yeah." <laughs> so Dude. yeah, it's a little awkward, but at the same time, you have to think about how old these guys are. They're probably like 18, 19 years old, and that's probably all they're thinking about. So again, not that uncommon. I don't really see it to be that odd. The the whole monk thing is kind of interesting because that's something that's new. We don't we've never seen this before with Jason going and getting trained by these monks and then in turn goes to see the monks because he finds out that the monks were actually killed by somebody. So I think, uh, again, this is going to be interesting, but I don't know that the monk thing or Jason avenging the monks is really going to be interesting. It's more of slowly discovering the past of these characters that are featured in the series. So, again, better than last issue, I'm going to give this three out of five bad ranks. This issue was bad <laughs> in so many ways. Positively, I I actually kind of like that D- Jason Todd is being written as sort of a protagonist here. Well, sort of a good guy here in a sense. He's not he's not trying to take over the mobs or anything. He's not he's not doing villainous acts. He's sort of whatever he's doing, he does it in a in a in a ethical way. Sort of, it's it's a lot more on the straight and narrow than it was during the during the reboot. He was like a bad guy and a super villain and all that. Because I never bought the idea of Jason Todd as a bad guy. He can be a rough you know a rough character or whatever, but him. Being an out-and-out villain never made sense just because he was an angry kid. That was always bad writing to me. Um, but speaking of bad writing, I did not like this issue through and through. Um, I don't know why Roy Harper is like the most pathetic character in like the DC Universe now. Just because he's a recovering drug addict. Isn't that what we want to encourage people to do? Recover from being a drug addict? Because if this is what they have to look forward to, a life of being a butt monkey. I don't know. I mean, it, like seriously, it doesn't make sense to me because this, this character has such a history with... Um, you know, he says the Justice League and the Teen Titans and everything. That's all still there. So why is he now subservient to this, like, teenage, you know, this, uh, I don't know, meathead or whatever? I'm not sure. This whole monk thing. Jason Todd was trained by uh, an assassin, a group of assassin monks. That's an oxymoron, first and foremost. Assassin monks, are you kidding me? Why is, why are all the women attracted, to, you know, attra- well, not all the women are attracted to him, but, you know, he's sitting there to do nothing, and this flight attendant is throwing himself all over him. Uh, Starfire is pointlessly commenting on his butt. The women here are written... It's, it's not the fact that, that, you know, Jason and Roy are like, oh, yeah, dude, you put the move and smooth, like like anybody says that. It's the fact that the women are all acting like men want them to be, you know, want them to act, essentially. I mean, Scott Lobdell defended this at one point, saying, oh, you're just mad that, you know, women want to be sexy or whatever. You're missing the point. You were writing this, and you were portraying them this way, as if they have nothing else in common. I mean, why is how is Starfire able to rent a limo anyway? Does she have a secret identity now? Like, how is she able to afford these clothes? We're, we're giving no information of this. Oh, I put the fight with this and this and this, and I had all these connections. Where does she get all these connections? Why does Jason go to Hong Kong in the first place? I mean, was, was that told to him in the last issue? I don't remember Hong Kong being specified. Who is Suzy Zhu? How did they know to go to the Himalayas? Why, how, how are these monks using their ghosts to, to attack him for no reason if they train him? How is this? How is all this happening? And uh, we're not. And, and even if it is happening, we're not given enough reason to care because so much of it is said and not shown. We are told Jason cares about these people because he was trained, and we assume it is such. But we're not given any reason to care just because it's told to us. And it's just, oh, go, let's go kick some ass, team. It was forced. This issue sucks. Zero out of five batterings. I think it's funny how 
in this issue, they kind of pass off the explanation of why Jason Todd was brought back by just saying no one knows, so that it doesn't really have to be explained to new readers. I didn't know who a lot of these characters were, but it wasn't too hard to follow the story, and it was it was easier to follow than the first issue because that was very confusing. But this was probably the first issue that I actually found legitimately, like, genuinely funny. And without it trying too hard, which it seems like Justice League seems to be trying too hard to be funny. Whereas this was very relaxed and I just found myself sort of laughing along with it. And I think that's why I, I quite like this book, just because it's such a different tone to the rest of the Bat books that we're reading. Having said that, it's not the best book but it's still an enjoyable read, so I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Okay, uh, this book was probably the only one that didn't really change for me, whereas all the other ones got, you know, either much better or slightly. This one didn't really change too much at all. Again, I, you know, the beginning is, is consistently solid for this book, but then it, it just tumbles downhill quickly. Uh, you know, we see a part of Jason's life from the past and how it's all connected to the temple that he ended up in at the end of the previous issue. And I, I thought it was it was really interesting and I was intrigued and it was uh, it, it keep kept pushing me to read more. But, yeah, you know, then we have to add the rest of the cast. <clears throat> and it seems that whenever that happens, the book takes a dive. Roy is absolutely annoying and seems to not further the plot, besides constantly mentioning having sex with Starfire. Once is completely enough for me. Actually, if you didn't mention it at all, that'd be great. Starfire, Starfire no longer seems to be the awkward alien that tries to fit in, but now she's like this J-Lo alien of sorts who doesn't really understand humans, but somehow knows that Roy is about to talk about the awkward sex issue. I think that Lobdell needs to stick to one uh, Starfire characterization rather than switching. That that would be great. I found the flight attendant scene to... Uh, it just went on for far too long. Uh, but I am at least thankful that Jason did not join the Mile High Club like some other male uh, character that we know and love. Uh, that large woman is certainly gross, uh, but I don't really see why that scene was necessary. Shouldn't he have had a change of clothes elsewhere? And then Jason says it's not his place to re-kill the monks slash his teachers at the end, but he ends up doing that very thing anyway, which really threw me off, and I just don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, I should also say that I enjoyed the page after Roy and Jason jump out of the plane because Starfire's hair connects to a lightning bolt, and I did think that was creative, so there are some pluses here. This added to the beginning of the book helped give it a 1 out of 5. Uh, I, I wish this were just a Red Hood book. I actually think it would be much better if it was just uh, Jason. So 1 out of 5, Batarangs. All right, and over on the website, the Newsdigger gave it four out of five batterings, so it's going to give Red Hood and the Outlaws number two out of five reviews, a total of two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our last issue, which is Nightwing number two. You've trained me well, Batman, but from now on, I make my own decisions, call my own shots, and my new name is... Nightwing. Hey! Actually... That's not bad. Thanks. Written by Kyle Higgins. Art by Eddie Barrows. 
the issue starts off right where issue one left off with Dick Grayson going against this uh, this new villain that uh, is specifically focusing his uh, assassin skills on Dick Grayson, unaware that Nightwing is Dick Grayson. Uh, this villain ends up uh, taking out a vehicle which Nightwing has to choose whether or not to go after the villain or to save the people inside, and of course he decides to save the people inside. He heads back to his apartment to change his outfit when he meets up with Raya, who happens to be ringing his doorbell and telling him he has to go off to uh, New Jersey to see Haley, the guy who owns Haley's Circus, immediately. While they're on Wayne Enterprises' jet, they uh, exchange a number of different things about what exactly is happening with uh, Haley, and Dick finds out that Haley is actually dying. On the outskirts of Atlantic City, um, we come to the Haley Circus warehouse, where tons of things have been stored for years and years and years since the beginning of Haley's Circus. Dick meets up with Mr. Haley, and Mr. Haley informs him that he intended on giving Dick's parents the, uh, the deed to the circus and everything that they owned from the very beginning. And in turn, since his parents are dead, Haley feels bad about it, but still insists that Dick takes over Haley's Circus. He also informs Dick that he knows that Dick is a hero and uh, he should not be doing his job as Nightwing, but rather performing and running the circus. Back on the jet, we see uh, Raya talking with Dick Grayson. Suddenly, the two become very close and uh, Dick joins the Mile High Club. Shortly there afterwards, the pilot comes out and has a phone call from somebody called Seiko, who we find out is the name of the villain that Nightwing was fighting in the beginning of the issue. At this point, uh, it's Psycho... <laughs> Psycho. <laughs> it's Seiko, right? Seiko? Maybe. Yeah, we'll just go with Seiko. At this point, Seiko tells Nightwing that he's actually figured out that Dick Grayson is Nightwing based off of a conversation that he had with Mr. Haley. So immediately, Dick has the pilot turn the jet around, makes an excuse to uh, get away from Raya... Uh, it didn't take that long to get away from Raya. And uh, goes back to the warehouse where he has a fight with S Seiko and finds out that uh, Mr. Haley has been tortured and uh, Seiko is intending to kill Nightwing because now he knows that he is in fact Dick Grayson. After a near escape, uh, Nightwing grabs Mr. Haley and escapes the uh, warehouse which is completely on fire. And uh, while this is happening, he makes sh he's watching the warehouse to see whether or not Seiko leaves, but doesn't see anything. At the very end of the issue, we see Mr. Haley, who has taken too much pain from the attack from Seiko, and he dies. And that is the end of issue number two. Nightwing number two. Great issue. Perfect balance of emotion, action, um, a little bit of a love story between Nightwing and Raya or Dick Grayson, Raya, I should say. Um, this clearly explains why Dick is going to be traveling with the circus in future issues, because he now owns the circus. Um, I'm not sure that the Raya thing is going to last. I think this was going to be a one-night stand type situation that's going to just uh, become awkward as time progresses, because I don't really see these two having a relationship for a long period of time. Um, especially now that, if you think about it, Dick is actually her boss. Um, 
<laughs> I do find it kind of interesting how the, for some reason, Mr. Haley, ins- well, one, I'd like to know how Mr. Haley actually knew Dick Grayson was Nightwing, number one. Number two, I'd like to know why Mr. Haley, out of all the people he's ever had in his circus, insisted on giving the Graysons the actual circus if he, if, if and when he was going to die. I can get the, him giving it to Dick Grayson because, he, like he said, he considers what happened to Dick's parents the greatest mistake he ever made. I understand that, but I don't understand why the Graysons would have gotten the circus from Mr. Haley. Um, I think the art was great. Um, it, it's kind of concerning what's going to happen with issue number five when uh, Trevor McCarthy comes on book for one issue because the art is going to be a very different art style. And I'm, I'm thinking by issue number five, I'm going to become accustomed to Eddie Barrow's art, which is, in my opinion, very, very good. With that being said, and that's not saying anything against Trevor McCarthy, because I like his art too. I just think I'm going to get used to the Eddie Barrow's art too much, and then the, the sudden art change is going to throw me for a loop once issue five comes around. But that being said, I think this issue was good. Actually, I think it was great. Four and a half out of five batterings. But I I liked this issue, although I had a number of things with it. I I agree with Dustin though. I love Eddie Barrow's art. I love his art. I love the inks by J.P. Mayer and Paulo Sakura, and I love the colors by Rod Rice. I really love all the art artists on the art team here. The storyline is intense. The fight scenes are intense. I should say the storytelling is intense, and um, I love the way Nightwing's depicted. He's he's athletic. He's strong. He's big. He's very sure of himself. Um, however, I will say that when he's just Dick Grayson, it's clear that they're 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 aping his visage off of Tom Welling. I mean, there's no that's that's Tom Welling on the page. I, I don't know. I'll, I found that rather interesting. I mean, obviously they must think that Tom Welling would be a good Dick Grayson uh, model, but um, it's a little distracting when, in some of the panels when it looks just like him from Smallville. Um, plot wise, I. I have some, I have some, I have some issues, um, mainly with this whole Haley thing, because if you think about it, it's, it's just as Dustin says. Why exactly would Mister Haley give the circus to the Graysons in the first place? I mean, the Graysons, as awesome as they were in their performance, they were just performers. They weren't like you know any business savvy people, as far as we've ever known. It's not even re- revealed here. How does he know? I mean, I suppose it's not too too hard to know that he's that he's Nightwing or, or was Robin. But that's kind of dumped on us. Why does he decide to meet at an abandoned warehouse instead of a hospital where he could, I don't know, be dying comfortably instead of dying horribly? And it's just like, you know, these guys kind of meet. He gives them the information, then Dick promptly leaves. It, it feels very forced. It feels like, you know, okay, here's the information to carry the story along. Now you'll never see me again until the next scene where after I said I would never reveal your identity to the scene where I do reveal your identity. It's kind of, it kind of moves too fast. Um, and, and and it's not there's not a, there's not enough humanity in the in the scenes for me to kind of like really buy it. I mean I buy it, but it was a little too pat, I should say. Um, the fight scenes are awesome though. The hookup with Raya, okay. <laughs> I've been going on and on about this for months now, and I'm kind of tired of hearing myself about it. But the thing is, I'm not you know this we're not this is not us you know looking to to talk about this kind of sex or whatever. This is it's in here all the time in these books now. And I kind of find it unrealistic or unbelievable that Dick and Raya would hook up this, like, hours after seeing each other for the first time in, like, over a decade or so. I mean, if you met somebody that you knew when you were a child, years later, 
and you were attracted to them, but hours later, would you be like hooking up? I mean, can you believably say that? You could. It's not impossible. I just find it like really weird, especially these two characters. And it's, it just hammers home the fact that female characters in these books aren't anything but love interest. The second we see Raya, we're like, oh, she's a love interest, obviously, because she's a female. And I find that really bad writing. So I'm very mixed on this issue. I like it. I want to like it more. But I have some problems, and I would give it two and a half out of five batterings. I like this issue, and again, I'm going to echo Dustin and Dom by saying that I love the art. I think it's really great. And where Dom was saying the issue's a bit padded or it moves a bit fast, I think it's because the majority of the book is like is two fight scenes. And to fit the necessary information in, it had to be kind of padded. So maybe we could have cut down on some of the fighting, although it was very cool. And I think the dialogue there was written well. And, you know, it was like the appropriate kind of jokey. And I think Higgins gets Grayson and writes them well. I'm kind of interested where this is going with, with where we learned in the news earlier about Dick going around with the circus. But I'm I'm going to have to read that and see where it goes because at the moment I can't really picture... Dick leaving Gotham, especially after being Batman and being so comfortable in the city. But like I said, I'm just going to have to go through that. And with the the scene on the plane, I don't particularly like it, but I think I've, I there have been worse sex scenes in the DC New. So I don't think it was handled particularly badly, but I still think it was a bit out of context. Not out of context, just a bit out of place. But I'm going to give this issue three and a half out of five patterns. Yeah, I, I just to start off, and I promise I won't sing Dustin, but it seems like every comic has, you know, a particular tie to a song. You know, first Red Hood is referencing Bon Jovi and You Give Love a Bad Name. And now this one is referencing Psycho Killer by The Talking Heads. So I kind of find that amusing and i'm really i'm not gonna sing right off the bat i felt like this issue felt much better than the previous better pacing better story more consistent writing i thought it was pretty solid overall i liked thinking that someone from dick's past made the connection between him and nightwing i think he actually saw him swing out of his window in forest hills on the first night that he was spider-man but i'm not sure i actually wonder uh if he knew him as robin first or if he just connected him to nightwing uh, but, you know, I do wonder if it's too soon for his identity to be known slash revealed, because now it seems like it's open for all the world to see. It's not just Mr. Haley anymore. Now we've got this this other guy knowing about it as well. I'm not sure what to think about Dick inheriting the circus. This, along with the dark secret of Haley's circus, seems a bit too contrived. It does, however, push me even further towards the thought that someone from the circus wants Dick killed, possibly because they knew this was coming. And yes, why are all of these characters having sex? What is, the like, the libido is off the charts. I don't even know. Um, I frankly don't understand. You know, Dick Grayson is like the DC version of Tony Stark, but seriously. Uh, but I do agree with, with Joe that at least this scene was, um, was more tastefully done like the one in Dark Knight. You know, it wasn't like all in our faces. I'll admit that Raya convincing she needs Dick to come with her rather than telling him that Mr. Haley's dying, having sex with someone whom he just remet for the first time in a long time, and Mr. Haley giving the circus to Dick all seem like strange plot points that 
once thought about seriously don't really make a whole lot of sense. But I just went along with the ride, and I, I enjoyed it. I thought Nightwing's voice seems true to the character, and the art is easier to follow, and the panels have a better layout than the last issue, for out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, the Newsdigger gave the issue five out of five batterings. So this is going to give... Nightwing number two, an average of four out of five batterings. That is all of our comic reviews, so let's get into our DCU spotlight. This week, I will recommend Justice League. As you recall, we did review the first issue, but seeing as that's not strictly a bat title, and we won't be reviewing it in the future, I recommend it. I was a little lukewarm on the first issue, but the second issue really picked up. I really enjoyed it. All the complaints about, you know, seeing more characters. We see The Flash instantly and just like his namesake he's there in a flash in the fight batman and superman are you know they tussle a bit but they don't it's it's not more of the 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 cliche batman and superman fight they get down to it they, they figure out they need to work together um the four superheroes are coming together we get more with cyborg uh jim lee's art is awesome there are really good splash pages or at least one with um superman doing something i won't spoil what but it's really really fun it's read fast it this has me excited for the team again it's excited for this title and, um, yeah, give it a shot. See what you think. Justice League. I am going to be recommending Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. Issue 2 has just come out, and it's written by Jeff Lemire, who's been doing great work on Animal Man as well. And uh, he also wrote the Flashpoint Frankenstein tie-in, which was also very good if you read that. And the art is by Alberto Ponticelli, which is a very odd art style because it's it's very loose and... So uh, it's quite rough looking, but it it does really fits the story, and it's it's quite nice to look at, especially the um, the creatures. It's a lot of monsters and things in it, and it's very sci-fi, and it's it's more sci-fi than horror, which is a bit odd considering the title. But it's a very enjoyable book, and I'm enjoying reading it. So I think everyone should check it out. Um, before I give my actual recommendation, I do definitely, I second Donovan's JLA number two. I thought that was wonderful. JLA, it's not JLA. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I definitely second Donovan's recommend, recommendation of JL number two. And I just generally recommend you guys to give all the number twos a chance i guess the ones that you picked up because like you've heard from this episode i think across the board really they've all increased uh or i guess improved is the better word uh but i recommend supergirl number two again mike green and michael green and mike johnson uh this one a lot of punching now between kara and cal but it's really all about her getting acclimated to this world and she's really freaking out and, and, and out of sorts with all these powers coming into her and not understanding what's going on and it was just great because um, she's just so confused and it makes, it's just more realistic I think than we're used to, to seeing Supergirl because normally we just see them plop down and they have these powers and it's really nice and they understand what's going on but that is not the way it would happen so I think this is it's just great and she's a strong character so far so I'm digging it all right, and for my recommendation, I'm going to recommend Suicide Squad number two. Basically, the idea of Suicide Squad is it takes a number of villains who have been incarcerated, a government organization ran by Amanda Waller, and plants bombs in these uh, villains and basically tells them, okay, you work for us now. If you don't do it, the bomb's going to go off. If you don't complete your mission, the 
bomb's going to go off. Um, by the way, we can just make the bomb go off for any reason. Harley Quinn and Deadshot are also part of this team, but issue number two specifically focuses on um, what appears to be Deadshot kind of taking the lead for the team and working with Amanda Waller behind a lot of the other villains' backs. Um, there's a lot of really weird, crazy crap that happens with uh, some kind of creature that overtakes a stadium full of people, and all of the people in the stadium need to be killed. Uh, the first issue really made you wonder why exactly all these people are going to need to be killed, but in some sense it was actually justified by the events that took place in issue number two. And uh, it's definitely got a shock ending that uh, you don't see coming. Um, there's a lot of other villains that you probably aren't so familiar with, mostly because some of these have been created specifically for the squad. Um, but yeah, gr great, great, great series, uh, great issue. Definitely check out Suicide Squad. All right, so let's cover what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. We'll definitely cover Batman Odyssey, which we bumped from this episode specifically because it isn't falling into continuity, so we bumped it to the next episode, so we'll cover that, along with Batman the Dark Knight number two, Batwing number three, and Detective Comics number three. So only four books to cover next time, so we might actually have time for a discussion. And uh, if you have any suggestions for what you'd like to hear us talk about, email us and let us know. So that is everything for this episode. I want to let everybody know there's an interview that we did with Scott Snyder where he talks about a number of different topics related to the Batman universe and specifically his run on uh, Detective Comics, Gates of Gotham, and Batman and some of the things we'll be seeing in the future. Um, there's also... we I, I sat down with Scott and we kind of hashed out some of the continuity uh, problems that we've been seeing over the last... Uh, I don't know, since the New 52 was announced, some of the problems that uh, have arisen with the actual ages of characters and things like that. So if you're interested in trying to figure out some of that, check out the Batman Universe interviews, and you can find out a number of different things from Scott Snyder. It's a really long interview, but chalked with all kinds of really fun and interesting and meaningful answers for what is to come. Besides that, you can uh, head over to the forums and become a member and chat with other uh, Bat fans about all of these comics that we review here on the podcast. Just make sure you shoot us an email and let us know that uh, you need your account activated and we'll be sure to get that activated right away. You can listen to all of our other podcasts and uh, you can surely... there's This is a uh, pretty big time for a number of different Batman things um, not related to comics, Batman Arkham City's out, Batman Year One is out, Young Justice um, Volume 2 is out as well, so definitely all kinds of stuff that's just been released recently, along with all the merchandise that comes with all of these different projects as well. So you can definitely find all of the news related to all of those things and everything else related to Batman over at the website, thebatmanuniverse.net. You can shoot us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter for all kinds of uh, updates for what's going on within the Batman world. And, of course, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. So with that, that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jai. This is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Ciao.
Okay, this is John. I'm here. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, are we recording? Batman Universe, hello. Oh, crap, I missed it.